1: Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 276 of the program. Today is Friday, February 5th, and before we get started, I want to thank all of the individuals who make this show possible, all of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which either signed up for the very first time to support us this week or increase the monthly pledge that they were already giving us, and that includes Andrew, Crowded Crow, Dominique Richardson, Douglas Young, Greg Tides, Harold L. Nicole, Inez Williamson, Jenna Nix. Joe Cross, John Ellis, John Mertz, Judith Moser, Mark, Melissa Lynn, Michael Martin, Owen Johnson, Peter Pollard, Ray Ray, Scott Rizzo, Shannon J. Brooks, and Tyler Geisbrecht. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support patreon.com slash humanist report or by clicking join underneath any one of our youtube videos we've got another fantastic episode for you this week we will talk about covid deniers that shut down a vaccine site additionally marjorie taylor green is a lot crazier than any of us imagined and the peasants took on the wall street hedge funds and won We'll talk about the reaction to Wall Street bets from elites. Also, Republicans proposed a counteroffer to the Democratic Party stimulus plan. We'll talk about that. Additionally, Dave Rubin has a theory about the far right, that they are actually the far left. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the MyPillow CEO made a splash on Newsmax TV. We'll talk about that. Additionally, AOC shares more details about the traumatic day when the Capitol was stormed by far-right extremists. That's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. Hopefully, you will enjoy the program. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has recently talked about how during the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, there was a moment where she actually thought she was legitimately going to die. Uh, She hasn't really talked much about that incident until now. During an Instagram live stream where she uh, discloses some more details and she shares how it really was the situation where she felt like that was the end of her life. Um, so we're going to show some clips from her Instagram uh, live stream and then we're going to talk about the response because the response to her sharing this traumatic experience. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. It's absolutely morally reprehensible and you really just you're learning how cold people are in politics where they've dehumanized folks like AOC to the point where you know they they are laughing at her having what she believed was a near-death experience and it's just gross but um nonetheless let's listen to her story because I think this is important
2: I opened the door when all of a sudden I hear that whoever was trying to get inside got into my office um, and then I realized that it's too late, that it's too late for me to get into the closet. And so I I go back in and I, I hide back in, um, in the bathroom behind the door. And then I just start to hear these yells of, where is she, where is she? And I just thought to myself, they got inside. And so I hide behind my door like this. Like I'm here, and the bathroom door starts going like this. Like the bathroom door is behind me, or rather in front of me. And I'm like this, and the door hinges right here. And I just hear, Where is she? Where is she? And Um, this was the moment where I thought everything was over. Um, and the weird thing about moments like these is that you lose all sense of time. Um, in retrospect, um, maybe it was four seconds. Maybe it was five seconds, maybe it was 10 seconds, maybe it was one second, I don't know. It felt like my brain was able to have so many thoughts in that moment um, between these screams and these yells of where is she? Where is she? And so I go down and I just, I mean, I thought I was going to die. Um, and i had a lot of thoughts you have a lot of thoughts <laughs> i think when you're in a situation like that um and like also one of those thoughts that i had was you know i just happened to you know be a spiritual person and be raised in that context and i really just felt like you know if this is the plan for me um then people will be able to take it from here. Um, I had a lot of thoughts, but that was the thought that I had about you all. Um, I felt that um, if this was the journey that my life was taking, that I felt that things were going to be okay. Um, um, and that, you know, I had fulfilled my purpose.
1: That is horrifying. It sounds like a nightmare. Now, she later learned that the individual who was screaming, where is she, was a Capitol Police officer. And once he came in, they still kind of got weird vibes. Because if you're a Capitol Police officer, shouldn't you announce that you are Capitol Police and uh after he was talking with her. He was still super aggressive. And he told her, he basically yelled at her, go to this area in the Capitol. Uh, He didn't tell her which room they should be in, in this particular building. And when they got there, they ran there. They weren't escorted there. Her and one of her staffers ran there and they were basically left wondering, where do we go? They heard the rioters outside. So they were questioning whether or not they were in more danger after listening to this individual. And even though in theory, like you would think, okay, this is someone who's supposed to protect me, it's a Capitol Police officer, right? Well, after seeing the way that they opened the gates for the insurrectionists, I'm not so sure that that individual was on her side. Like, if I were in that situation and Capitol Police basically let this happen, at least a substantial portion of them were and they were taking selfies, I wouldn't necessarily feel safe. So the fact that they got a bad vibe from this individual after, you know, he was screaming at her, I I don't blame them. I don't blame them at all. Now, she explains that this situation was particularly traumatic because she experienced past trauma before and she came out as a sexual assault survivor, which is something that is very, very difficult to do.
2: Folks who tell us to move on, that it's not a big deal, that we should forget what's happened, or even telling us to apologize, um, these are the same tactics of abusers. And... Um, I'm a survivor of sexual assault, um, and I haven't told many people that in my life. Um, but when we go through trauma, trauma compounds on each other.
1: I give her credit. That is something that's really difficult to do because in this day and age, when we're supposed to be applauding sexual assault survivors and encouraging them to come out and share their stories. Like this is the Me Too era, right? You have so many people, like, laughing this off, downplaying it. Oh, she's just being melodramatic. Nobody wanted to kill her. Is that so? Because one of the individuals who was charged during the Capitol insurrection openly talked about wanting to assassinate AOC specifically. Is it really that shocking? to think that white supremacists who are violent, who were storming the Capitol, wouldn't be targeting individuals like AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib. I just, you know, the callousness is really what strikes me from this story. Like the response to her is what strikes me. And I don't want to give you this false impression that most people dismiss this and, and mocked her. Um, Because most people were supportive. Most people, you know, are standing in solidarity with AOC as she shares this story. But usually, you know, the most negative uh, things that we see are what kind of stay with us. Now, one more clip that I want to play for you before I talk about the response from right-wingers and some who claim to be on the left um, is from Representative Katie Porter. In an interview with Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC, she talked about how uh, when her and AOC connected, the response uh, that AOC had, like the look on her face, um, she was rattled.
3: Well, at first she, you know, she saw me um, she, and we waved and went into my office and a couple seconds later she knocked and she said, you know, could we, could we come in? And I said, of course. Um, and she began to, uh, do, you know, her staffer was trying to describe what had happened. And Alex is, is really usually like unfailingly polite um, and very personable. And she wasn't even really talking to me. She was opening up doors and, and I was like, can I help you? Like, what are you looking for? And she said, I'm looking for where I'm going to hide. And the thing that will always stay with me, the two memories that really, you know, especially as a mom, I think were just really powerful for me, was when she said, you know, I I was saying, well, don't worry. I'm a mom. I'm calm. I've got everything here we need. We could live for like a month in this office. And she said, I just hope I get to be a mom. I hope I don't die today. And the, the second thing is she was wearing um heels and i remember her saying to me i was wearing flats and i remember her saying to me i knew i shouldn't have worn heels how am i gonna run and we went and we found her a pair of sneakers to wear from one of my staffers so that she could run if she needed to literally run for her life
1: i can't imagine what she was going through that sounds absolutely horrible and this is going to be something that stays with her for the rest of her life like she was already dealing with existing trauma being a sexual assault survivor but that moment that's going to stay with her forever Uh, she's going to carry that with her for the rest of her life um speaking from firsthand experience when you deal with psychological trauma it doesn't just like go away like you can't just get over it as easy as that sounds you can't it stays with you for years and decades um, uh, But the response was just, as I alluded to earlier, I don't even know how to describe this. It's just it's cold hearted. So uh, right wing conspiracy theorist Stephen Crowder tweeted out an image of Karl Marx with the shirt that says seize the means of reproduction. And he wrote allegedly AOC's abuser was found. Um, I'm not necessarily sure what the joke is here. Apparently, this is supposed to be funny, uh, but this is just his way of belittling her experience there. Uh, Michael Tracy tweeted out, good to know that any loopy delusion expounded by a politician must now be respected and, quote, believed under the aegis of trauma. Unreal. And it's not just right wingers. There were some individuals who claim to be left wingers, which I don't think that they're left wingers if they're downplaying this. Uh, That's that, you know, they're just laughing at this oh, well, you know, she's being melodramatic. Um, You know, what about the folks who are uh, dying because they don't have health care? Since she didn't agree to the strategy of force the vote, therefore, that means she doesn't support Medicare for all in my twisted view of the world. And therefore, you know, I don't care if she thought she was going to die because what about the people who are dying now? Like, the the mental gymnastics that people jump through in their minds to downplay this, it just shows you that, like— there's, there's no rationale. There's no logic. There's no human empathy. It's just like in politics, we've come to a point where we always work backwards from whatever conclusion we've arrived at. And some folks have just chosen to make AOC the enemy. Demonize like one of the only left-wing members of Congress who's a genuine ally. Demonize her. And so whatever she says is invalid. Anything she says is wrong because she's the enemy. She's the enemy. This is the result of uh conditioning by folks with very large platforms who just do nothing but rail against aoc attack 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 she's the enemy she's stopping you from having medicare for all she's the problem it's not corporate democrats it's not republicans it's her it's just sickening like the state of the left right now it it really worries me um it's just it's like a snake eating its own tail right Demonizing AOC, like it, I think that holding politicians accountable is absolutely necessary and warranted. You have to hold everyone in Congress accountable because they're in a position of power. They're in a position of great influence where they can actually affect change. But perhaps, maybe when they're like sharing their story about how they believed they were going to die, that's not necessarily the right time to do it. Maybe, maybe this is just me. Uh, wait until a different instance, maybe when it's more appropriate. To bring up something like maybe when they're sharing the fact that they're a sexual assault survivor and dealt with existing trauma that might not necessarily be the best time to air your grievances with this individual who is an ally to us believe it or not it's just shocking to me and because she wasn't actually being hunted down by you know a far-right extremist storming the capitol because it was a capitol police officer people are claiming that um she's just being melodramatic Does that make her feelings any less real? There are people who literally suffer from panic disorder who have what's known as amygdala hijack, I think it's called, where they just like inexplicably have panic attacks. They uh, have this like influx of adrenaline. Their heart starts racing. They start sweating and they have that fight or flight response. It could be like just the most random time ever. You could be in the store grocery shopping and all of a sudden you get the instinct to get out, run, because you feel like you're going to die. There's no reason for it. But people get this. Does it mean they're actually in danger? No. But are those feelings real? Yeah, they're pretty fucking real. They're pretty fucking terrifying. I'm speaking from firsthand experience where you could just be doing the most random thing ever, watching a movie, you're relaxing, you're having a great time and all of a sudden, there it goes, you're in full on panic mode out of nowhere and you feel like you're going to die, you have that instinct to run away but there's nothing that's attacking you so you you kind of just like sit there and you try to play it off because you don't want to look like an idiot in front of other people Um, but in, in your own mind, in your body, you're feeling all of this, it's not just psychological, it's physiological as well your heart's racing, and it's horrifying. Is there actually danger? No, but that doesn't make the feeling any less real and horrifying. And each time you suffer from a panic attack like this, you know, um, you remember it. You fear when the next one is going to come. This is what AOC is trying to talk about. Because she had existing trauma, like, she's always in that mindset, like, where If something traumatizing or scary happens, she immediately is going to think, oh my god, it's happening again. I'm in great danger. And it's not like she didn't have a good reason to believe that she was in danger during this insurrection. Because again, there are violent white supremacists who want her dead. And I just, I don't understand the callousness. I don't get it. I just, um, yeah, I'm very, very uh discouraged at the state of politics currently uh, on the left but thankfully you know we're kind of in this echo chamber where the dumbest folks usually are the loudest but they're not the majority and we still can move forward and progress um with the help of allies like aoc and so if we expect her to you know represent us and have our backs you know maybe at a time like this we should be having her back and uh, defending her because what she went through is awful. The Trump-supporting CEO of MyPillow, Mike Lindell, appeared on Newsmax TV to talk about how he was banned from Twitter. I'm assuming he was planning to complain about how he's being censored and this is cancel culture. Uh, But the interview itself came to a screeching halt when he said something that prompted the anchors to stop the interview because they were worried that this guy was going to get them sued. So they basically had to read what appeared to be a legal statement from Newsmax TV, and hilarity ensued. Uh, take a look. I don't want to say much more about this because I don't want to spoil it, but this was absolutely golden.
3: So well, what happened? What, what happened with your Twitter account and the uh, company page?
0: Well, first, mine was taken down because we have all the election fraud with these Dominion machines. We have a 100% proof, and then I when they took it down Um, uh, about three weeks ago. and then put it back up my personal i put it it was mike uh, thank you very much mike mike i I, you're talking about machines uh that that we at newsmax have not been able to verify any of uh (laughs) those kinds of allegations Uh, we just want to let people know uh, that there's uh, nothing substantive that we've seen and let me read you something there while there were some clear evidence of some cases of vote fraud and election irregularities the election results in every state were certified And Newsmax accepts the results as legal and final. The courts have also supported that view. So so, we wanted to talk to you about canceling culture, if you will. We don't want to relitigate the the, the, uh, allegations that you're making, Mike, because we we understand where you are. So let me ask you this. Do you think that this should be temporary because it appears to be permanent? Could you make an argument that it is temporary? What? What? (laughs) <laughs> could you make an argument that this could be a temporary banning rather than permanent? No, I want it to be a permanent because, you know what, they did this because I'm revealing all the evidence on Friday of all the election problems with these machines. So I'm sorry if you think okay. it's not uh, Mike, it's real. Mike, can I report. ask our producers, can we uh, get out of here, please? Uh, I, I don't want to have to keep going over this. Actually, we at Newsmax Mike, have not been able wait, to verify Sanders any of those Sanders, allegations wait, that you're, you're Mike. Hold on a second, Sanders,
3: everybody, Sanders. everybody. Hold on a second, Mike. Mike, hold on one second. Uh, let's talk a little bit about just what is happening overall in terms of censorship
0: it feels like of. You're trying to cancel out my company and myself okay. in this country. It's cancel culture.
1: They're... Wow. I mean, I don't know what they expected because mike lindell has kind of proven that he is a deranged lunatic and he was banned from twitter specifically because he was spreading misinformation about the election so did you not expect him to bring up dominion because i felt like if you were going to invite him on your program that would be part of the conversation but the reason why for those of you who don't know newsmax was really worried about what he was saying there and they had to stop him was because they don't want to be sued in fact after they were spreading misinformation about the election and defaming dominion Well, they threatened them with a lawsuit, so they had to basically come out with this apology and statement saying that there's no evidence that Dominion was involved in flipping the votes. It was this big thing. So they're trying to move past that, and then they bring on this jackass who's claiming that Dominion was part of the effort that led to the election being stolen, which there's no evidence for, but they literally had no choice. Like, legally, they were obligated to stop him and read that legal statement. It was just—it was hilarious. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes, invite lunatics on your program. Don't be surprised when they say things that are so crazy that you're going to be worrying whether or not you'll be sued. And I love the plot twist in that segment. I don't know if you caught it, but when uh, the anchor tried to change the subject back to Twitter and asked him, so do you think that you can make the case that your Twitter ban should be, you know, temporary instead of permanent? The CEO, Mike Lindell, says, no, I want it to be permanent well, then why are you complaining? If they literally gave you exactly what you wanted, what's the problem? <laughs> like you, you, you say that you've been banned and this is bad, but yet you want the ban to be permanent. Now, I don't know what he was trying to say. Like, maybe the point was that, well, I want to be permanently banned because this just proves that the left supports cancel culture and they want to censor conservatives. Maybe that was the point. But overall, the way that he was trying to make his case as to why twitter banning him was bad but yet he wants the ban to be permanent like it's just it's incoherent like i don't get what the overall message is and for whatever reason right wingers have become so accustomed to like playing the victims that now whenever they're banned from like twitter or facebook or whatever they conflate that to their free speech rights being violated you know how like we have the first amendment and the government isn't supposed to censor us Well, now, if a private company like Twitter bans you, that apparently is tantamount to your free speech being violated. This is why they need to teach civics in high school, because nobody knows the meanings of the political terms that they use, and we just need to, like, get a little refresher, because, um... That doesn't mean your free speech was violated. Now, uh, you know, there's the conversation that we all should be having about how these Silicon Valley tech companies have way too much power and they need to be uh, reined in. We need to regulate them more. We need to use antitrust laws to break them up, nationalize them if need be, regulate them as public utilities. That's a legitimate conversation. But what Republicans like to do, Donald Trump, Mike Lindell, is they'll get banned after they have had repeated warnings. And then they play the victim immediately. Like Donald Trump, people forget this. He wasn't just bad immediately when he started to spread misinformation um, about the election, which ultimately led to the Capitol insurrection that culminated in, you know, him getting banned from Twitter. Um, Every single tweet almost that he made after the election was a lie and Twitter flagged all of them. So it wasn't until like a month or so later when there was actually violence as a result of his lies that they took any action like and and so it's shocking to me that folks defend individuals like mike lindell and donald trump when normal folks get banned all the time from twitter and nobody makes a peep about that but the minute it's like this right winger who literally incites violence and mike lindell is part of that too if you're lying about the election that led to people thinking that they needed to storm the capitol to save democracy you're part of that as well but like that's that's when people like choose to die on this hill no i'm i am pro free speech so we literally should allow people who incite riots to have access to a twitter account like it's weird to me but it's funny that like this dude was going on there he was gonna play the victim and newsmax thought they had this easy segment where you know we'll just bring this idiot on he'll talk about cancel culture and how the left wants to censor conservatives but they uh they got something that they did not bargain for they got him saying something that would almost get them sued and so now I really want to see more conservatives go on uh, Newsmax TV and mention Dominion. So that way they have that uh, little scrambling session where they try to like stop them. And um, it gets to a point where they just leave because they don't want to be involved. They don't want to be personally, legally accountable. I love this. <laughs> Every second of that was golden. It is almost impossible to keep up with all of the news Regarding Marjorie Taylor Greene, a congresswoman from Georgia's 14th congressional district, last week we went over all of the most bizarre conspiracy theories that I thought she believed, but believe it or not, there's even more conspiracy theories that may be more bizarre than the ones we already knew about. For example, she once suggested that a space laser controlled by Jewish elites may have been responsible for the California wildfires. She also suggested that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and was replaced with a body double. So, of course, you know, Trump wouldn't be able to name her replacement. Now, I think that that conspiracy theory was disproven last year. But nonetheless, the fact that she believes these things leads me to think that there's no conspiracy theory that she wouldn't fall for. And you already see some leftists online trying to catfish her in a way by uh, sending her DMs through Twitter saying, listen, I've got some evidence that's going to lead to the arrest of Hillary Clinton. Like, she's very trollable because she will believe anything. She's a rube. Like, anything that has a hint of conspiracy to it or, um, anti-Semitism, it seems like she'll gobble it up. It's- it's honestly sad, especially because, like, we're not talking about some random individual who's lost. This is a policymaker. You can't function as a competent policymaker if you don't have, like, a bare minimum level of intelligence and you're that far gone. And she hasn't even been in Congress for a month. And she already can't even coexist with her colleagues because Cori Bush asked her to wear a mask since they're kind of neighbors, their offices are close to each other, and that led to her berating Cory Bush and Cory Bush then feeling forced to move her office because this person is very clearly a lunatic. If you can't even react like a grown up to somebody asking you to wear a mask and you berate them then, I mean, I don't, I don't blame Cori Bush. I would want to move my office away from her, too. Now, in a way, I think that even though, like, what she represents is utterly terrifying, Democrats can use this to their advantage if they're smart, if they're savvy, if they're disciplined in their messaging. And what they need to do is make her the face of the Republican Party, because like it or not, she kind of is an accurate representation of a significant portion of the GOP's base. All of their years of, you know... Trying to appeal to racists using dog whistles, you know, conspiracy theories, uh, playing loose with the facts has culminated in this, a possible takeover of their own party with lunatics. Now, thankfully, it does seem as if Democrats are planning to make her the face of the Republican party, and I think it would behoove them to do this because they want to turn people off. Like, overall, this will make Republicans more popular with a certain sector of society, but most normal Americans are going to be turned off by this. And thankfully, what Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing is kind of causing this civil war slash existential crisis to occur within the Republican Party, at least when it comes to Georgia's Republican Party, because they're currently panicking, trying to find some way to distance themselves from this lunatic who's already been legitimized by Donald Trump. Donald Trump called her a rising star. So the question is, like, what what do we do after we spent years appealing and catering to these people like we never thought that they would take over our party but here we are so the question is what do we do And uh, this story is laid out beautifully by Mark Caputo of Politico, who writes, The Georgia GOP is tearing itself apart in a civil war. It lost two Senate seats in an ill-fated January runoff election, and the once-Republican suburbs in metro Atlanta, the most populous part of the state, have bolted toward the Democratic side. Now it's contending with another budding public relations catastrophe. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, the newly elected congresswoman whose extremist beliefs and promotion of bizarre conspiracy theories have rocketed her to national notoriety. The calls for censure and her removal from Congress don't appear to have damaged her standing in her conservative North Georgia district and may have even strengthened the so-called QAnon congresswoman there for now. She tweeted Friday that she raised $1.6 million off all the controversy and on Saturday told her 300,000 followers she just had a chat with the supportive of Donald Trump, the former president who has referred to her as a future Republican star. This is what a nightmare scenario looks like. Yeah, I bet. And to that I say, you've made your bed, so now lie in it. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Try to appeal to lunatics. Don't be surprised when they end up taking over your party because that's exactly what's happening. The Republican Party is being taken over by complete lunatics. It's not just Marjorie Taylor Greene. Laura Boebert is another member of Congress who supports QAnon or was subscribed to that conspiracy theory. Um, And she, during the Capitol insurrection, literally tweeted out Nancy Pelosi's location, presumably because she wanted Nancy Pelosi to be targeted by the insurrectionists. Like, these folks are deranged, more so than the already deranged members of the GOP. I mean, when you think of Ted Cruz and uh, Louie Gohmert, Jim Inhofe, you think... These people, like, you can't get worse than them. But then Laura Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene show up and it's like, okay, so I guess that the bar is even lower than I thought. So, um, you know, I don't know how this is going to play out. Is there going to be a civil war in the Republican Party? I really don't know because when we saw the way that the Republican Party establishment handled the Tea Party, they kind of did it in a pretty strategic way. Like, they didn't necessarily reject the Tea Party outright. They kind of co-opted that movement and embraced it. Not that it was like a genuine grassroots movement because this was funded by billionaires like the Koch brothers, but they kind of like embraced them and adopted some of the rhetoric and just overall shifted further to the right to accommodate the Tea Party. Um... So what's going to happen? Like, are they going to shift further to the right to accommodate these QAnon conspiracy theorists? I mean, in theory, uh, QAnon should be done because everything that Q said was wrong. Trump is out of power. He didn't arrest people. Uh, Biden was sworn in. So that should be done. But I mean, when it comes to these sorts of conspiracy minded individuals who makes Alex Jones seem reasonable in comparison, what are they going to do? I mean, I would think that they're probably going to do what they did with the Tea Party and just embrace this element of their party, shift a little bit further to the right just to accommodate these people. Because how many Republicans already signed on to Donald Trump's scam to claim that the election was stolen and how many voted to not certify the election results? So, so they're already kind of doing it, like they're already kind of shifting to the right and becoming authoritarian to accommodate folks like this. So, uh, And it's not just to accommodate folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene specifically. To be clear, it's to accommodate the GOP's increasingly extremist base. So what is this going to lead to? I don't know. Will she be censured? Don't know. Will she be expelled? I don't know. Should she? Uh, absolutely. Because if you don't even accept democracy itself, if you refuse to certify the results of the election and you're anti-democracy, you shouldn't serve in a democratic body, Will she, though? Don't think so. I don't think so. And if she's not, then Democrats would be foolish to not use this as an opportunity to paint her as the face of the Republican Party to try to turn off more people. Because, I I mean, the Republican Party is already extremist, so I don't know what more examples you need. Uh, But if this doesn't turn people off to the Republican Party, then uh, America, as we know it, is in a lot worse shape than previously thought. So uh, I'm sure that there's going to be more conspiracy theories about Marjorie Taylor Greene that come out. And I'm not going to lie, I'm really enjoying this story. Uh, Any news surrounding her, I'm gobbling that shit up because it's entertaining. Like, it's sad because it hurts democracy, but at the same time, it is kind of nice to see everything we predicted come to fruition, even if we were hoping to be wrong. Like, when we said years ago that the Republicans are playing a dangerous game by pandering to these types of folks and it's going to come back to bite them, it is nice to see us be proven right. Right. Even if that comes at a cost, but, you know, we'll we'll see how they handle this. I, I just, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm too cynical. I, I think that they're going to end up embracing folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene. They're just, they're too far gone. The party is, is I don't know how you deal with this party. It's fucking insane. So I think that a general issue that we all anticipated with regard to the COVID-19 vaccine is getting people to want to take the vaccine. We can't actually end the pandemic if people are skeptical about the vaccine or are afraid to take it. So we have to get them to want to take it. We have to combat the spread of misinformation. That's something that I think we all knew was going to be part of this process. But one thing that I didn't necessarily anticipate was getting people who don't want to take the COVID-19 vaccine to not want to stop others from taking the COVID-19 vaccine because that's what happened. There was a small protest at the Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles and they blocked traffic and ended up shutting down the entire vaccine site temporarily. So this is something that we also have to deal with. So as Mary Poppenfuss of HuffPost reports, anti-vaxxer and far-right protesters blocked the entrance of a mass vaccine site at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles on Saturday, forcing officials to temporarily shut down the operation. Dozens of protesters holding aloft signs reading Save Your Soul and COVID Equals Scam halted traffic, stranding hundreds of people desperate to get the life-saving injections. The Los Angeles Fire Department closed the site at mid-afternoon, the Los Angeles Times reported. It was reopened. Opened about an hour later, reported NBC News, the protest was apparently organized on social media. The quote-unquote Scamdemic March organizers warned participants to refrain from wearing Trump slash MAGA attire, as we want our statement to resonate with the sheep. The Times reported, "This is completely wrong," said German Jack Hez, who drove some six hours to get to the site. "I've been waiting for weeks to get an appointment," he told The Times. "I am a dentist. I'm taking a big risk being around patients. I want to be safe for my patients and." For my family, yeah. Now here is a quick video that gives you a little bit of a taste of the insanity that ensued, followed by uh, a shot of the traffic jam that this caused, and it was massive. Gee, you think maybe because Bill Gates' parents started Planned Parenthood and they like to kill babies and sell their body parts to the highest bidder? You ever think about that? needless to say my faith in humanity is at an all-time low um there were these fact sheets quote-unquote fact sheets that were handed out to people in cars and some of these so-called protesters were harassing individuals in cars calling them sheeples and whatnot there's actually a clip of that as well
4: why
0: are you wearing? A mask?
1: Oh, and a lot of people will tell me, well, your dog needs a mask. Okay, your your dog 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 dog. a mask, your dog needs a mask, your dog needs a mask. <laughs> Do you think I <laughs> can get COVID? <laughs> your to mask. Mask. People put them on yeah. Yeah. And, if it it. Mean, them and if they need adjustment, they mean, touch them on the side. They also death. operate they over pain and food. I pray that none of you are in power. Your dog is smarter than you. so, okay. That is just insane. Um, this is really depressing, and I was starting to feel a little bit more optimistic, but this kind of got me back into that doomer mindset. Seeing this really, um, it kind of rattled me because look at the way that we're responding to something that theoretically shouldn't be that confusing. If we can't even address a pandemic in a competent way, and you see all of these conspiracy theories pop up, how the hell are we going to solve a much more pressing issue like? climate change i just it you know seeing things like this it makes me feel hopeless and you know they were saying have fun being a byproduct of bill gates and there was another lady like walking around uh filming the people in the car and i think she was calling them sheep um you had a lady on that had a shirt that said fake news and she was referring to cnn but ironically i'm sure that she gets her news from facebook memes and oan the problem is that Folks, they've arrived at like the correct conclusion in a way, but the way that they got there has led them astray. So like they have this vague idea about elites like Bill Gates and they know that elites in general, billionaires in general are bad, but they don't know why they're bad. They can't articulate an intelligent reason why we should fear people like Bill Gates. Like for me, from my perspective, Bill Gates is a billionaire. He exploited the labor of his employees to get rich, make billions of dollars. And the wealthy elites in this country, uh, in a capitalist system, wealth equals power, and they use the power that they have to perpetually rig the system in their favor so they continue to increase their wealth while the poor gets stuck with crumbs. So that's why we should not like the elites. But to these individuals, the reason why they don't like elites is because they think that people like Bill Gates are either satanic pedophiles or in the case of COVID-19 he's not actually trying to like fund the vaccine to stop the spread of the virus he's trying to inject people with like the mark of the beast or RFID uh, chips I don't know what the conspiracy theory is in particular related to Bill Gates and I will say that like we shouldn't have to rely on the generosity of billionaires to fund projects like this or help fund projects like this whatever his role in this was And we should just be taxing him and funding these initiatives through the government. Like, Big Pharma should be nationalized. Like, I'm aware that there are criticisms with, you know, elites. But the conclusions that they arrive at, like, how they get from point A to point B, point B being that elites are bad, is where all the problems arrive. It's why you can't work with right-wingers, because even if they agree that the establishment is the problem and elites in this country are bad... Well since they arrived at that conclusion differently the solutions that they would apply are completely different. So in this instance these folks think you just don't get vaccinated because you know it's bad. You're getting sick from the vaccines. Uh, on top of that they think that you are going to receive the mark of the beast, I'm guessing. There's so many conspiracy theories related to the COVID-19 vaccines that I can't keep up. But this is dangerous. This is dangerous. People are dying in America. We're almost at 450,000 deaths. And you have people like this blocking traffic and literally getting an entire vaccine site shut down. This is the largest vaccine site in Los Angeles. And just a small group of people shut it down. Imagine if the rest of the conspiratorial people who are Trump supporters knew how easy it was to do something like this. This is horrifying. Absolutely horrifying horrifying now i want to show uh, you some additional pictures here you have one guy holding a sign that says end the lockdown Uh, you have this guy he has a sign with really small text that you can't even read but you can kind of see exactly what You know, it's alluding to that vaccines are bad. They have a bunch of chemicals in it. He can't necessarily explain why vaccines are bad, but they're bad because chemicals sound scary. So, you know, I I don't know what it is. Uh, Ignorance breeds fear. Um, You have this person that has a sign that says, I only like muzzles in the bedroom. So she's just, you know, so clever, so edgy. And the other side of the same sign, as you can see from the picture on the left, says 99.96% survival rate. Now, I've seen this statistic a lot, as reason to like not take COVID-19 seriously uh first of all that's wrong that is not the survival rate it's about one percent but it really varies depending on your age your medical conditions if you have any comorbidities um and and furthermore like when you just look at that number one percent it seems small in a vacuum but we as human beings we don't exist in a vacuum. So, you need some perspective here. Back in May of 2020, the attending physician for Congress predicted about 70-150 to million Americans would contract COVID-19. Now, currently, we're not there yet. We're at around 26 million cases with 440,000 deaths. But if that early estimate actually did bear out, here's what a 1% mortality rate would actually look like. Quote, A 1% mortality rate at that scale of infection is between 700,000 and 1.5 million dead. Roughly the population of Washington DC on the low end or the entire population of Hawaii on the high end. So yeah, 1% might sound small in theory, but if you just look at the raw numbers, that's a lot of human lives that are lost if like the worst case scenario bore out. If Hawaii just suddenly disappeared like that... Wouldn't we be concerned or would we think, well, it's only like 1% of the U.S. population or the human population, so, you know, there's a lot more humans. Statistically, you're not likely to uh, disappear, so we shouldn't care. No, of course not, because we're human beings. We have empathy for other human beings. I just, I I don't get this thinking. Well, you know, if I'm young and healthy, it's probably not going to impact me as badly. So, you know, if old people die, mm, fuck it. I just, I don't understand this thinking. I don't get it, how selfish and disgusting this is. And it's not like, oh, well, we shouldn't care because there's a high survival rate of COVID-19. Most people do survive COVID-19, but the issue is that there are long-term health effects that linger for who knows how long. How long do people with COVID-19 lose their sense of taste or smell? Is it permanent? We don't know. And also, this photograph provided by Texas Tech University shows that the people who had COVID-19, their lungs, even compared to smokers, looks absolutely terrible. Like, you don't have to be an expert or be able to read x-rays to know why it looks so different, why it's much worse than normal lungs or even smoker's lungs like this is serious and like even when it comes to the common cold we all get colds we know that we're going to survive this but still if someone had a cold would you just let them cough in your face because you know that there's going to be a high percentage that you survive that of course not because it still sucks to get sick so this line of thinking is fucking stupid and not wanting to get the vaccine yourself that's one thing but to literally actively stop people from getting the vaccine under the guise of you are protecting them. You're trying to save their soul, which tells me this is some like nutty evangelical thing. It's just the species cannot survive with this level of stupidity. And then you have figures who spread misinformation with large platforms about vaccines, and that also compounds makes the issue much worse. It's just it's really, really frustrating. So uh the vaccine is needed to save lives. You're not helping. You're hurting people if you're against this. You're hurting people by doing this. And if they genuinely believe that, like, they care about these folks, then wouldn't calling them fucking sheeple not persuade them to your side? Like, that sounds fucking stupid. How many of these people who are using the term sheeple watch OAN, follow Trump religiously, subscribe to a religion, and they're calling other sheeple? Like, these people are the dumbest in society. Like, they are the absolute dumbest of the dumb. And it's individuals like them who hold the entire human race back. So these folks should be absolutely ashamed of themselves, but they have no shame. They genuinely believe that what they're doing is noble and they think that they're saving lives, when in actuality, they're not. They're hurting all of us. Dave Rubin, otherwise known as Rave Dubin, has a really interesting new theory about the far right. Um, His theory is that they're actually (laughs) the left. (laughs) I don't have the full clip, so I don't know like what the full context is, like why this was included in the broader conversation that he was having with his audience. Nonetheless, what he says here is, um, we'll call it fascinating.
5: Now, is there some far right, which really is far left because it's collectivist, is there some white nationalist problem on the right? Well, yes it's a tiny little thing that has no institutional power i don't think trump is part of it i don't think tucker carlson is part of it and because it's collectivist it's actually left not right but that that's a whole separate issue if you were if you were really far right that would mean that you're just the ultimate individualist meaning you don't want government so you know that's like you want to
1: live in mad max or something which i think is kind of fun to talk about but i don't think it's that is that real me? okay um that short clip that we just watched dare i say contained too many high-level ideas because I don't know how to respond to that. Like, my, my brain, is, brain is in recovery in mode from taking in too many so high-level important ideas. ideas. I don't I don't know what to say. I took the time to transcribe everything that he said there because I really wanted to dissect this, and I still don't know how to make heads or tails of this. He says, Now, is there some far right which really is far left? So his assertion is that there's not actually any white nationalists in the Republican Party, because in actuality, the far right really is the far left. And the evidence for that is, well, the far right, white nationalists specifically, they're collectivists. And since collectivists are leftists, that means that white nationalists are actually leftists So, that conveniently solves the white nationalist problem that the Republican Party currently has, and it is now, all of a sudden, a problem that the Democratic Party has to deal with, I'm assuming? This is a very, very, um, it's an interesting take. The difference is that, would I describe white nationalists as collectivists? Because I kind of feel like he doesn't know what that means. I think that white nationalists, more specifically, are tribalists. Sure, they do prioritize the group over the individual as collectivists do, but the difference is that collectivists, generally speaking, from the standpoint of economic politics, they are looking at this from the perspective of, in a civilized society, isn't it better that we pull resources so everyone benefits? rather than letting some individuals go hungry, go homeless. Like, it's that battle between wit versus yo-yo. Wit is W-I-T-T. We're in this together versus you're on your own. It's a very simplistic economic philosophy. And so what he's saying is that white nationalists are actually collectivists because collectivists, since they prioritize the group, well, by definition, that makes white nationalists who prioritize white identity over everything else leftists. It's some really interesting logic. You have to make a lot of leaps from point A to point B. Um, Ultimately, what this proves is nothing. The point he's making doesn't really make any sense. I think I've been a little bit too generous and charitable in trying to make sense of what he was saying. If white nationalists, like to the extent that they actually support collectivism it's to the exclusion of everyone who is not white so if they theoretically support a welfare state which we don't know that all white nationalists do maybe some do it is to the exclusion of everyone else not necessarily collectivist that's more tribalistic but he also said something in here that's really interesting so he says that white nationalists are they a problem on the right well yes it's a tiny little thing that has no institutional power he then goes on to name two very popular white nationalists with lots of institutional power he says i don't think trump is part of it i don't think tucker carlson is part of it now i don't know why he name dropped these two individuals but donald trump was the president of the united states he was a white nationalist a white supremacist like he retweeted one of his own followers saying white power Look at the policies that he instituted over the course of four years. Someone who was a demagogue, who specifically was demeaning and demonized other races, calling Mexicans rapists and whatnot, that person is a white supremacist. And he was the president. If that's not institutional power, I don't know what is. Now, when it comes to Tucker Carlson, someone who claims that immigrants make America dirtier, um, that is pretty clearly, uh, white supremacist. I don't think that individuals who aren't white supremacists would think that immigrants make America dirtier. He also very, uh, clearly targets members of Congress such as Ilhan Omar, claims that she hates our country, our country, excluding hers. That's the implication. Um, but he doesn't have institutional power according to, uh, Dave Rubin when he's the host of the most popular news show in the country on the most popular news network in america so finally he says if you were really far right that would just mean you're the ultimate individualist meaning you don't want government so that's like you want to live in mad max or something which i think is kind of fun to talk about but i don't think is that real so his view of political ideology is really, really oversimplified, and I don't think he has a grasp of the political terminology that he's using. I just don't understand why he has a show. Like, he has to be the dumbest person in all of political commentary. And this is across the left, the right, I'm including the most extreme figures. Uh, He's the dumbest out of everyone. You could tell, like, he's just genuinely disinterested in politics, like, he would be more suited to do commentary on gossip related to celebrities or something like that. And he kind of did do that uh, a long time ago. Like, when he had his own show on The Young Turks, he would interview celebrities like Lance Bass and whatnot, and they'd talk about gossip. And sometimes they'd get a little bit political, but, you know, nothing nothing too in-depth. He doesn't want to be doing this, you could tell. But, I mean, he made this bed, uh, and this is the grift that he pursued. So, you know, you can't really back out. It's, it's lucrative, so... He's pursuing it, but you can tell, like, he just he doesn't care. Like, he doesn't read political philosophy, he doesn't read any of the right wing figures that supposedly influence him. He just he doesn't even know the talking points that right wingers use, generally speaking. Like if I listen to Tim Pool's podcast, he's going to say certain things that a lot of right wingers Say if you consume right wing media, they're all kind of going to think the same way, and as a result, say the same things. They kind of parrot each other and whatnot. Um, Dave Rubin doesn't sound anything like them. Like he's not part of that right wing echo chamber as his colleagues are. Like for me, like if you watch uh, David Dole, Kyle Kolinsky, Benjamin Dixon, you know all of us, we kind of have the same themes in our shows, right? We say kind of the same thing, um, and the same is true on the right because if you think a certain way if you subscribe to a certain political ideology like you're going to have a lot of overlap but dave rubin's show is so like unique the only area where there's overlap with other right wingers is when he talks about like cancel culture and stuff because that's easy you don't necessarily have to do research you just bring on like some right winger who was banned on twitter and you say this is evidence that we don't have free speech anymore so unless it's like the laziest thing imaginable I mean, his shell is almost apolitical. It's it's just so stupid. So I don't know what to say. Uh, this is uh this is uh Dave Rubin, very serious political commentator, who says that white nationalists, the far right, they're actually the left. Okay, rave. Well, as you all know by now, last week, a single subreddit, Wall Street Bets, beat short sellers at their own game and gave these hedge funds a taste of their own medicine. And it was just beautiful to see. And all of this culminated in the company that bet against GameStop, Melvin Capital, taking a hit of more than 50%. <laughs> you love to see it. This really is a David versus Goliath story, and what I also love about this story is it proved to normal Americans that the system is rigged against you. And that was especially evident when Robinhood, Interactive Brokers, and Weeble all literally stopped allowing people to buy shares from GameStop and AMC all to protect these hedge funds that bet against GameStop. Now, we'll go to a story from The Intercept where they talk about how this really demonstrates how financial tech firms have far too much power and have to be reined in. But first, I do want to have some fun because I want to talk about some of the reactions I didn't get a chance to talk about last week uh, that just really made my day. First of all, I've got to share this clip from MSNBC. The hurt here is palpable. This elite does not like that the peasants beat the elites at their own game.
6: You're learning here. Maybe it's fun. Fine. Maybe it's a movement. But be prepared to lose 80 to 90 percent of it. And if it's still worth it, then have at it. But the biggest loss of capital here will be the human capital of young men who are sitting and staring at their phone and watching the price of Bitcoin or the price of AMC. And ask yourself, would you be better off taking that one, two or three hours a day and working out, trying to form relationships with mentors, with, with, with romantic relationships, with people at work, getting great at something so you can be the person on the other side of the trade. The greatest loss in, in capital here is, is from young men who are more prone to gambling addiction, who don't understand. Uh, the markets. I think we are setting ourselves up similar to how there's a ton of young women out there who became very depressed by sitting in their rooms looking at Instagram, self cutting and self harm skyrocket. I think you are going to see uh, uh, an explosion in young male depression. And I think a lot of it is going to be reverse engineered to apps that convince you you're part of a movement or physically addict you to your phone. Ask yourself. Would your time staring at Robinhood be be better spent somewhere else. That is the real capital destruction that is taking place.
1: I'm sorry. What? <laughs> That's a bit of a stretch. What do you say? He should he he's concerned about you. He's not concerned about these hedge funds that are losing money because of you. He's concerned about you. Like shouldn't you be off of your phone? Shouldn't you put down the phone get turn off robin hood go out there and uh, take a walk the fact that he said this and thinks people are going to take him seriously is hilarious uh, another clip that i have to share with you is from real life monopoly man billionaire hedge fund manager leon cooperman who uh, literally claimed on cnbc with a straight face that this is an attack on the wealthy the reason the market is doing what it's doing is people
7: are sitting at home getting the checks from the government okay And this fair share is a bullshit concept. It's just a way of attacking wealthy people. And, you know, I think it's inappropriate. We all got to work together and pull together.
1: He literally said that. They're attacking wealthy people. Oh, no, dude. Are you serious? He can't be serious. Do you think that people care about wealthy people when how many Americans are losing their jobs? Are struggling to put food on the table, not even making a, a living wage. You think that we care about elites because they lost money? I think they're going to be okay. And uh, we actually have some live footage of elites reacting to Wall Street bets and uh, GameStop. Another was
0: Sarah Although at the time he wasn't sure he wanted to accept the gift. Nick, do you
2: think he'll let us stay? <laughs> no, this place is so <clears throat> You and me. Have- we're <laughs> promise <never> to <laughs>
4: the and no one's ever gonna break us apart. At the city, man, I
7: that's
1: <laughs> Yeah. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with Leon Cooperman, he is a bit of a drama queen. The last time that he made headlines, uh, was because he literally was on CNBC and he cried because the subject of the wealth tax came up. I wish I were making this up, but I'm not. He cried because he felt as if the rich in this country, they're just being demonized too much. I mean,
5: I think it's kind of obvious people can not only see the emotion on your face, but hear it in your voice when you talk about this, Lee. Why? I care.
7: That's
1: it. (laughs) (laughs) That was magical. Now, we've had our fun. So, uh, on a more serious note, I do want to talk about what is, uh, I think, obvious, what I hope should be obvious to everyone that we shouldn't allow these financial tech firms to be able to manipulate the market on behalf of these hedge funds. They shouldn't have that much power. They have to be reined in. And The Intercept laid out this argument beautifully. This is by Timmy Iwayemi and Max Moran who argue despite hedge fund bros Retail investors led a surge in GameStop's stock price largely through the trading app Robinhood. While progressives relished watching Wall Street's old guard scramble amid the chaos, financial tech firms like Robinhood, apps for lending, investing, and so on certainly aren't seeking an end to financial capitalism. Indeed, once Wall Street began shrieking about amateurs beating them at their own absurd game, Robinhood warned against the very market volatility it was facilitating, then shut down trading of GameStop and other memed stocks, leading to at least one class action lawsuit And Senate and House progressives calling for investigation. Ultimately, it looks like the hedge fund Robinhood users targeted, Melvin Capital Management, will just be partly bought by a different, larger hedge fund, Citadel Capital Management. A separate company called Citadel Securities, which has the same owner as Citadel Capital Management, Ken Griffin, the richest man in Illinois, facilitates some of Robinhood's transactions. Robinhood itself makes money by selling data on users' trades to giant Wall Street firms who then stake their own positions based off what the little guy is up to. The Securities and Exchange Commission also charged Robinhood last month for offering bad trading prices to unsuspecting users since those trades were routed through firms paying Robinhood. If true, Robinhood's users were effectively paying a premium on their trades despite the app marketing itself as commission-free. This took place between 2015 and late 2018 when Robinhood was growing rapidly according to the SEC. You wouldn't know any of this from Robinhood's faux-populist marketing about democratizing finance, but much like traditional Wall Street and big tech firms. Before it, financial tech is building an echo chamber of industry voices and former regulators to ease oversight and permit its predatory practices. These range from, as The Intercept and type investigations have previously reported, high interest lending like best egg to legitimately novel efforts, at least in our lifetimes, to privatize and surveil the basic operations of the monetary system. Responding to fintech will be a key regulatory challenge for the Biden administration, but it enters this fight with one hand already tied behind their backs. American financial law vastly predates the digital era and is often ill-suited to describing online financial activity, and plenty of fintech firms design themselves to deliberately evade falling under any legal classifications and regulations that follow them. Now, the conclusion, as Bernie Sanders concisely puts it, is that the business model of Wall Street is fraud. That's exactly what this is. That's what we're seeing here. Um, Now, of course, we have to rein these companies in, but the article goes into great detail and I'll link to it down below about how Biden's administration has a lot of conflicts of interest and why it's not going to be likely that the folks who are benefiting from these companies are going to want to rein them in and when it comes to the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen actually took $800,000 more than $800,000 in speaking fees from Citadel and that's according to Slate. So the question is why would these individuals who are overseeing these financial tech firms want to regulate them and rein them in when they're not incentivized to do that. They're incentivized to let them kind of do what they want to do and regulate themselves. Look, it's why nothing really seems to change in this country. Because of money and politics. And I'm not just talking about the traditional legalized bribes of campaign contributions where these private companies, they'll give money to politicians and then those politicians will in turn represent them, pass policies that they want. Like, it goes deeper than that. The corruption is rampant where folks who are likely to get jobs based on, you know, their previous positions, they will be buttered up by these companies. I mean, Hillary Clinton, before she ran for president, got tons of money in speaking fees. As soon as Obama got out, he got money from speaking fees as a way to, I guess, kind of like pay him back for not regulating them as hard as he should have. So, you know, it's a revolving door. It's corruption. It's legalized bribery. I mean, this really is the intersection of everything that is wrong with our system and why we never see changes. Why, when it comes to policy outcomes, average citizens have a statistically insignificant impact on what actually gets passed, whereas special interests, they actually do dictate what policies pass out of Congress. Like, it's it's a rigged system. Like, it's rigged against you. It's rigged against us from a policy perspective, and really what this does is it lifts that veil. Normal Americans can finally see because of this story that the system isn't working for you. And that's the beauty of this story. This is basically Occupy 2.0 because the little guy won and they didn't just win, they got the entire system to expose itself. And that is a beautiful thing. And the uh, meltdown that ensued afterwards that will continue to uh, ensue is something that I am absolutely going to uh, enjoy. Because it's about time that these assholes and these elites got a taste of their own medicine. Like, it's fine for them to have the system rigged in their favor. But the minute things don't go their way, well, we saw what happens. They're so brazen. Once again, Republicans have proven why nobody in the country should be taking them seriously and, more importantly, why they should be sidelined from any and all future negotiations related to the stimulus package. Uh, Because they are trying to get Biden to agree to their watered-down version of stimulus relief when they have no leverage. But their pitch to Joe Biden is, is laughable, what they've come up with. So, 10 GOP senators have basically said this to Joe Biden. I'm paraphrasing. Hey, we know that you, uh, you know, you're trying to promote this idea that you want to unify the country. We hear Democrats talking about abolishing the filibuster and passing policies using budget reconciliation will make it easier for you. You don't have to do any of that. We'll give you the 10 votes that you need. No questions asked. All you have to do is basically everything that we want you to do. Take your $1.9 trillion package that you already admit is insufficient and make it completely inadequate to the point where it doesn't do anything. <laughs> that's that's basically the pitch. Like, of course, I'm being less charitable, but you have these 10 so-called moderate senators who actually think they have the leverage- to pull this off now i know that democrats usually get rolled by republicans in congress but this is so laughable so painfully idiotic that i can't see how anyone goes for it so they're saying they're going to give Joe Biden the 10 votes that he wants if he agrees to these conditions. This is according to Jeff Stein of The Washington Post. So when it comes to his plan, if he cuts three months of unemployment assurance, knocking it down by $100 a week, uh, cuts $350 billion in aid for states and cities. Cuts the monthly child benefit, removes the $15 an hour minimum wage increase, reduces checks from $1,400 to $1,000, cuts parts of school funding, uh, then... They'll be more inclined to go along with it. Additionally, uh, they want to further means test the already means tested survival checks. So that way, instead of making the threshold, you know, means tested above $75,000 per year in income, they want a means tested above $40,000. Like that's that's insane. Also, they want no money to assist renters in need who face eviction if they have lost their jobs. It's almost like they're trolling in a way like this. This is that laughable. How about this? If I'm Joe Biden, if I'm the Democratic Party, I'm telling them, we're just going to go ahead and pass this stimulus package without you. And then you get to explain to your constituents why you denied them relief, why we voted to give them money. But you said, no, I don't want to give my constituents money. You have no leverage here. We don't need you. It'd be nice to have you. But if you don't get on board with this, then fuck off. You're the one who has to explain yourself. We'll do this without you. Now, the question is whether or not Democrats will actually uh, allow this to happen. Joe Biden is uh, holding a meeting with these 10 Senate Republicans, which I think is uh, not even something he should be doing. Uh, It doesn't necessarily seem like he's willing to budge, at least according to his press secretary, because he already knows that the $1.9 trillion proposal isn't enough. So he doesn't necessarily seem to want to like even smaller when the idea is maybe we should even be going bigger but the fact that he's meeting with them and even humoring them i think is too much uh thankfully though the congressional democratic party leadership doesn't seem to even want to waste their time entertaining this stupidity. Pelosi's office actually announced a joint budget resolution that lets them pass the plan using budget reconciliation. And Democratic Party members of Congress in general seem to be just dismissing it outright, according to Jeff Stein of the Washington Post. So, I mean, we'll just have to wait and see. When you get a proposal like this that is so unreasonable, to even entertain it is a joke. I mean, imagine if when the republican party was considering their tax cut plan for the rich and democrats said listen the only way we'd go along with this is if you put medicare for all in your plan like that's the level of unreasonableness here they'd say well why do we need to put medicare for all in this we don't support medicare for all and we don't need democratic party votes to get this passed like it's the same thing like they want you to take this bill Water it down to the point where it's not even the same bill and make it effectively meaningless, also they comply with you? No, it doesn't work like that. Okay? If there is no bipartisanship, it's because of you, not because of Democrats. Do you understand? And Democrats, the problem is that they need to be disciplined. They're never disciplined in their messaging and they always allow Republicans to monopolize discourse in this country. They need to actually hold their ground and say, look, we reached out to Republicans. We tried to let them get some input here, but all they wanted to do was further water down, further means test what was already not enough. So we had no choice. We had to go without them. And we gave everyone in this country more economic relief When they, you know, watered it down. I mean, what it seems like they're basically trying to do is force Joe Biden's hand, getting him to prove that he was serious about unity. And if he slaps this down, then I guess he wasn't serious about unity in their eyes. But I mean, okay, if you make it seem like he's going back on that promise to unify the country, you're simultaneously forcing him to go back on other promises like he already promised two thousand dollar checks and it's down to fourteen hundred and you're saying no further water down that promise which was already watered down effectively cut the two thousand check promise in half and you're you're using this to convince him it just it doesn't make sense like trying to make sense of this uh, is unnecessary because it doesn't make sense It's unreasonable. They're clowns and nobody should be taking them seriously. Uh, If I'm Democrats, I'm sidelining them and we don't ever meet them halfway because they would never do that. If they want to actually help the American people, we'll welcome them. We'll welcome their input. But they're very deliberately slapping down something that isn't even sufficient when we're in a crisis in America. So we don't get blamed for that. They get blamed for that. And if Democrats somehow end up letting them you know, capture the narrative here, then that's on them. That's their own stupidity. If they get rolled, that's on them because you have all the leverage in the world right now. They should be laughed out of the room. That should be the response. Joe Biden shouldn't even be humoring them with the meeting. I think that's that's stupid, right? But he wants to at least put up this facade that there's going to be unity, but there's no unity because you have a party that's completely captured by extremists. So do what you need to do, pass relief, and then brag about it and claim that you did it without... Republicans, that's, that's how you own them. Actually, go bigger. Don't go smaller. You already watered it down. You don't need to water it down further to appease these dipshits like Susan Collins. Bernie Sanders is now the Senate Budget Committee Chairman, and he is already flexing his muscles. And this is just truly, it's awesome to see. It gives me at least some hope, a little bit. Not like a lot, but some hope. So, as Warren Gunnels tweets out, today Budget Committee Chair Sanders introduced the $1.9 trillion budget resolution allowing the Senate to boost direct payments to $2,000, provide $400 a week to the unemployed, uh, raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, prevent mass layoffs, and more. And the motion to proceed passed 50 to 49. Let's go. And I love this because, you know, democrats they were already too kind to republicans like they tried to reach out tried to give them some input and they already proved within a matter of weeks they're clowns they're not serious actors like the uh the counter offer that the 10 moderate republicans proposed to biden's 1.9 trillion dollar stimulus package it should get them laughed out of the room like they're not serious about actually delivering to the american people at a time of crisis so sideline them pushed them out of the way. You gave them a chance. Now it's time to pass what the American people need uh, using reconciliation. Now, on the floor, Bernie Sanders responded to um, attacks that Republicans have lobbed against him because he is pushing for budget reconciliation to m- make change. And uh, what he said here was just, it was perfect.
7: Now, Mr. President, I have heard from some of my Republican colleagues who tell us that, well, this reconciliation concept, that's a radical idea. Why are you using reconciliation? And they're telling us that it is absolutely imperative that we go forward in a bipartisan way and require 60 votes for passage. But I must say that when Republicans used this same reconciliation process, Mr. President, I didn't hear much about bipartisanship at that point. In fact, Republicans used the reconciliation process to provide trillions of dollars in tax breaks to the top 1% and large profitable corporations by a simple majority vote. The only people who voted for that bill were Republicans. No bipartisanship in that bill. My Republican colleagues used reconciliation to open up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for the drilling of oil once again by a simple majority. Only people who supported that were Republicans, not one Democrat. As we all remember painfully, my Republican colleagues used the reconciliation process to try to repeal the Affordable Care Act and throw up to 32 million Americans off of the health care they currently have. And as you'll recall, Mr. President, that was a 100% partisan vote, which fortunately lost by one vote. Further, weeks, weeks before a presidential election, last election. My Republican colleagues pushed through their nominee for the Supreme Court with 50 votes. A few weeks before the election, not one Democrat supported that nominee. Totally partisan vote. Well, as the incoming chair of the Senate Budget Committee, this is what I believe. If Republicans can use reconciliation to help the wealthy and the powerful and pass legislation strongly opposed by the American people, we can and must use reconciliation to help Americans recover from the worst economic and public health crisis in the modern history of our country.
1: This is why I love Bernie Sanders. This is why I love Bernie Sanders, because he's calling out the GOP's hypocrisy. A blatant double standard. Why is it acceptable to use budget reconciliation if we're delivering tax cuts to the rich, or if we are confirming a Supreme Court nominee that corporate America really, really wants on that court? But the minute we try to actually push through things that help the american people especially at a time of crisis well all of a sudden we're questioning where's the bipartisanship why can't we work together why can't we hold hands and sing kumbaya after we've been obstructing everything that democrats have tried to do for the last i don't know uh, 10 15 years i mean republicans are they're not serious they're a party that has been hijacked by not only extremists but private interests corporate america and it's not like the democratic party isn't also you know um controlled by big business but the republican party they're not even trying to pretend to represent people they won't even do the bare minimum and like if you want people to spend money have purchasing purchasing power to buy the things that capitalists produce then you can't like bleed them dry you can't only give them crumbs and expect the wheels of capitalism to keep on turning that's just not the way that it works so democrats at least being capitalists that they are acknowledge that if we don't have money to buy all of the goods and things that capitalists make or their workers make to be more specific then the system isn't going to work but Republicans have become ideologues. They are only about delivering to corporate America. And if they can't actually deliver anything to corporate America, if it's just about helping out normal Americans, then they're they're not in favor of it unless there's something for their corporate donors. It's why they agreed to the CARES Act only because— There was a bailout for large multinational corporations. So it's just, they're so transparent. And Bernie Sanders is basically stating the obvious, but it doesn't get said enough in D.C. So I love what he said there, and I'm looking forward to seeing the way that he um, governs as the uh, chair of the Senate Budget Committee. Love it. When Donald Trump withdrew from the JCPOA, otherwise known as the Iran Nuclear Agreement, you know, and started saber-rattling against Iran and almost bombed them. According to multiple reports, I thought there's no way that the next administration, if it is democratic, is going to be able to get us back into this peace agreement with Iran because that's effectively what the JCPOA was. It was a peace agreement. Iran agrees to not enrich uranium to a certain extent, and as a result there's no justification for an invasion or regime change when we get, you know, a bloodthirsty administration that wants to actually do regime change. And, you know, we came close during the Trump years with John Bolton in his ear. But I was pleasantly surprised to learn that Iran was actually willing to come to the table and the president of Iran actually had called on the incoming Biden administration to re-enter the agreement. So, I thought, wow, maybe this is possible. Maybe this can work, except fast forward to today, and Biden's administration is dragging its feet when it comes to renegotiation uh, of of this agreement. And I don't know if Joe Biden is going back on his campaign promise to re-enter the Iran nuclear agreement, or if there's a saboteur in the ranks of the Biden administration who is trying to make peace less possible. I'm talking about. Anthony Blinken. And let me just say before we get into the specifics here that if the Biden administration fucks this up, then the next Republican administration is definitely not going to re enter this peace agreement. They're definitely going to continue to escalate and ramp up the tensions as Trump did. So we have one chance. We can't mess this up, but they're already bungling it. And we got signs that this would be the case when Secretary of State Anthony Blinken emphasized the importance of consulting with Israel before re-entering the Iran nuclear agreement. Um, we don't have to consult with another country about our relationship with a different country. That doesn't involve them, especially when that government who we are supposedly going to be consulting with is hell-bent on escalation and regime change. We then learned that Secretary Blinken was fear-mongering about Iran, suggesting that they could be weeks away from having material needed to build a nuclear bomb. And now, Newsweek is reporting that Biden's administration has dodged an offer from Iran to discuss their re-entry into the deal. Now, we will listen to the new Secretary of State struggle to articulate a good reason why we're not actually talking with Iran. Why we're giving them the cold shoulder when they're literally reaching out to pursue peace.
5: Um, With regard to uh, Iran, uh, President Biden has been uh, very clear in saying that uh, if Iran comes back into full compliance with its obligations under the JCPOA, uh, the United States uh, would do the same thing. Uh, And then we would use that uh, as a platform uh, to build with our allies and partners Uh, what we call a longer uh, and stronger agreement, and to deal with a number of other issues that are deeply problematic in uh, the relationship uh, with Iran. Uh, But we are uh, a a long ways uh, from that point. Uh, Iran is uh, out of compliance uh, on a number of fronts, and uh, it would take some time, should it make the decision to do so, for it to come back into compliance, and time for us then to assess uh, whether it was meeting its obligations. So we're not, uh, uh, we're not there yet, uh, to say the least. Um, and then with regard to uh, uh, how we would engage this issue if Iran <coughs> decides to come back into compliance, uh, I can tell you that we will, um, we will build a, a strong team uh, of experts, and uh, we will bring to bear different perspectives uh, on the issue. Uh, we this, – uh, this is something I would say this across the board, by the way. Um, one of the things that I feel very strongly about is that in any of the issues we're engaged on, in any of the issues that we're tackling uh, and that our foreign policy has to confront, uh, that uh, we are constantly questioning our own assumptions and premises, uh, that we, uh, we do not engage in, in groupthink, <laughs> that there is uh, as much um, self-criticism and self-reflection as uh, we get from appropriately Uh, the outside, whether it's from from you or whether it's from people who disagree with the policies we're pursuing. So I think you can expect uh, to see that as we move forward, both with regard potentially to Iran uh, and for that matter to just about any other issue we we tackle. Thank you.
1: So to put it more simply, he's saying that we're not going to talk with Iran without preconditions. We will renegotiate the terms of the JCPOA if and only if they are within compliance of said agreement that we pulled out from. What? We're the ones who withdrew unilaterally from that agreement. We're the ones who broke the deal. We're the ones who weren't compliant with the deal. So, isn't that a little bit unreasonable? Like, imagine if Iran said, you know what, we're not talking after you violated the terms of this agreement unless you get rid of all the sanctions. We're not going to talk with you unless there are preconditions. Imagine if they said that. We would be outraged by it the u.s government more specifically would be outraged and they think you know they would think how dare you put these conditions on this negotiations like we're the united states how dare you do that but iran is being pretty reasonable here they're saying hey here's an olive branch do you want to get back into this agreement which is mutually beneficial or do you not and biden's administration at least for now is saying, mm, you need to do this for me first. <laughs> do you want peace or not? Because if you fuck this up, if you don't renegotiate this deal, re-enter the JCPOA, guess what happens? A bloodthirsty neocon is going to get power and actually do what Trump was too afraid to do, bomb Iran, start a war with Iran. I mean, this is part of Biden's campaign promise. So I don't know if Anthony Blinken is at odds with Joe Biden and is undermining him. But either way, this is absolutely despicable. Talk to them. Pursue peace. Even if you fail, the mere fact that you're pursuing peace, that in and of itself makes you worthy of applause. Donald Trump was in over his head when it came to negotiations with North Korea. I don't think he had the first clue about korean politics i don't think he knew what would actually facilitate long-lasting peace between the north and south of korea and you know north korea and the united states but the mere fact that he was talking to them and not trying to you know threaten them every other day um that that was preferable that's better like we should be pursuing peace we should be trying to right the wrongs of the past four years as you claim you wanted to do joe biden Donald Trump withdrew and you disagreed with that. So now, why are you doing Donald Trump's bidding by not talking to Iran to form this peace agreement? We violated the deal. We reimposed sanctions after we pledged to not do that because that was the terms of the deal. So if you can acknowledge that they're not in compliance anymore, then acknowledge that we're also not in compliance. I mean, look, this is all early discussions. Maybe they're just posturing Either way, it's deeply infuriating because I did not even expect Iran to want to work with the US again because it's a hard sell. It's a really hard sell. Like the hardliners in Iran, they already were against the JCPOA in the first place. And so you're making it a lot more difficult for the moderates to sell this to everyone else in the country. Like the Iranian people are much more moderate than the government itself, but the moderates within government, Iran like you're making their job a lot more difficult you're making this a harder sell and if you genuinely want peace if you want to like put back together the pieces of Obama's legacy that Trump destroyed this is easy this is easy this is a simple thing you can do that the left would be happy with and that would actually be meaningful But they're botching it. And now that I'm shitting on Joe Biden, I should also take the time to um, call out the fact that his administration is considering Rahm Emanuel to be the ambassador to China or Japan. And I I just don't understand why they can't let this guy go. He covered up the murder of Laquan McDonald. He's a racist. Why do you have to give him some job? Like, I I don't understand the uh, relationship here, why you're so attached to him. So look, I'll I'll leave that there. Um, I don't know why Democrats have such a hard on for um, for Rahm Emanuel, and I don't know why this is so difficult for Joe Biden's administration. Trump undid your legacy. Do you want to repair what was broken, or do you want to like make it easier for some neocon who comes to power to invade Iran? I don't know, but either way, I don't like it. I don't like what I'm seeing. This is bad. And if it doesn't change, then we actually need to form an anti-war movement in the country. I mean, we need that regardless. But the reason why both parties are so hawkish is because there's zero pressure. I mean, part of it is capitalist forces, all right, as well, obviously, you know, the defense industry, uh, the military-industrial complex, but... We have to have some sort of leverage, and unless there's, like, a real movement to stop wars in this country, like, this is going to be the status quo. It's not going to change, regardless if you like Democrats or Republicans. So, you know, if he doesn't actually move towards peace, it's early, but if he doesn't act, and if we continue to see what looks to be sabotage by Secretary Blinken, then there needs to be pressure on Biden's administration, absolutely, without question. War with Iran is is not even on the table at all. It should never be. Joe Biden hasn't been president for very long, but yet, since he's been inaugurated, already almost 300 individuals have been deported under his watch. Now, you might ask yourself, why is this happening when his administration immediately halted most deportations for at least 100 days? Well, the answer is a Trump-appointed judge decided to throw a wrench in that plan and at least blocked it temporarily for 14 days. So, this is complicated and even though... This kind of gets in the way of Joe Biden's agenda. There are things that he could have done to subvert that judge's ruling because it is temporary. And these 300 deportations that have taken place, they were unnecessary. He could have stopped them. So I don't know if this is necessarily due to him being negligent or incompetent, but either way, it's something that he needs to stop if he truly does want to right the wrongs of the Obama era in terms of the way that they treated immigrants. So, immediately after Joe Biden was sworn in, the Department of Homeland Security announced that it would halt most deportations of non-citizens, and also they paused Donald Trump's cruel remain in Mexico policy, which basically forced asylum seekers to stay in Mexico while they waited to get a hearing in America. However, days later after this policy was changed, as CBS News reports, a Trump-appointed judge decided to block Biden's moratorium on deportations, at least temporarily. And they explain U.S. District Judge Drew Tipton of the Southern District of Texas agreed to pause the policy for at least 14 days while he considered a lawsuit followed by the Texas Republican Attorney General, Ken Paxton, who argued in a complaint on Friday that the deportation freeze violated immigration law and a legal agreement the state brokered with the Trump administration before Mr. Biden took office. The moratorium, one of Mr. Biden's campaign promises, shielded most immigrants facing deportation from being removed from the United States as long as they entered the country before November 1st of 2020. It does not apply to those who pose a national security risk or are suspected of terrorism or espionage. Immigrants could also agree to voluntarily leave the country. On January 8th, Ken Cuccinelli, who was then the second in command at the Department of Homeland Security, signed an agreement committing the department to consult Texas and consider its views before changing policies governing the enforcement of federal immigration law. DHS signed similar deals with other states and localities, but legal experts have questioned whether they are legally enforceable. So basically, the ghouls in Trump's administration anticipated that this change would be coming and they put in place a last-minute policy that required the federal government to consult with states before implementing any new changes. And this was basically a brazen attempt to stop or at a minimum delay the progress that Joe Biden wanted to make when it comes to uh, deportations. They knew he would be halting deportations for 100 days and um, they are now making this argument um, to stop it. Texas is saying, well, you know, since the Department of Homeland Security didn't consult with us or at least give us a forewarning that they'd be making this policy change, looks like it's invalid. It looks like we can still continue to deport people. Now, um, this is definitely disgusting. It's it's cynical. This is taking place during a pandemic. You are putting these lives at risk. But there is a way that Joe Biden could have subverted this obstacle. So if all of the deportations that were already scheduled went ahead As planned, because of this judge's ruling, all Joe Biden's administration needed to do was simply reschedule these deportations, at least delay them until after we get, you know, a final ruling from uh, the courts until this is litigated and um, you could have stopped these 300 people from being uh, deported. But that's not what happened. So, as AP reports, a federal judge last week ordered the Biden administration not to enforce a 100 day moratorium on deportations, but the ruling did not require the government to schedule them. In recent days, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement has deported immigrants to at least three countries 15 people to Jamaica on Thursday and 269 people to Guatemala and Honduras on Friday. More deportation flights were scheduled Monday. Two legal experts say that regardless of the judge's order on the deportation moratorium, ICE could release Im- Immigrants with deportation orders, keep people detained or otherwise delay the deportation process. Scheduling deportations is still a matter of discretion for the agency, said Steve Yell Lower, an immigration law professor at Cornell University. So even though a Trump-appointed judge stopped Joe Biden's moratorium on deportations from going into effect, and even though Trump's administration made last-minute changes to kind of at least delay progress from taking place, anything that Joe Biden wanted to um put in place. Uh, you know, this was avoidable. Joe Biden could have easily just rescheduled these deportations. So it's uh, deeply frustrating that this was not the case. It is tragic that folks are being deported during a pandemic, and one of the individuals who was deported was actually a witness to murder. So it might have been useful to have a witness to murder remain in the United States while that case was uh was litigated. It's just it's deeply sad it's deeply sad. I think that this really demonstrates the necessity of immediate comprehensive immigration reform. And we don't just need, like, to put these folks on a path to citizenship. They're paying their taxes. They're living here. Their children go to our schools. Make them citizens. There's no need to prolong their pain and delay it. They should be given immediate citizenship. So I absolutely blame Joe Biden for this, because even though Donald Trump's administration, uh, they did this, this is like the lasting legacy of Trump's ruthlessness when it comes to immigration. Joe Biden's administration should at least be savvy enough and competent enough to stop anything that they should have anticipated legally. You know, any obstacle that, you know, these Republican governors would have put up, they should have anticipated that and had a plan to respond to them, but they didn't. Now, I do have to give Joe Biden credit where it's due. He did sign executive orders that are good when it comes to the issue of immigration. First of all, he created a task force that aims to reunite separated families. Also, uh, these executive orders give aid to Central American governments in an attempt to address the root causes of immigration. And I actually do think this is a really good start considering the US's role in destabilizing this region in the first place. Um, you You need something more comprehensive, but I think this is a really good first step in the right direction. Now finally, his executive orders will review the naturalization process, make it more streamlined, get rid of these draconian rules put in place by the Trump administration that make it more difficult for non-citizens to secure legal status if they've received public assistance. I mean, this is all a really good step in the right direction, but all of this amounts to a piecemeal approach. I really genuinely hope that Joe Biden fulfills his promise of immigration reform and in the event he does pursue immigration reform as he promised he would, I hope that it doesn't get watered down. Like, it's already not strong enough, what he's proposing. Like, if we're talking about a path to citizenship that lasts for eight years, I mean, you're giving yourself enough time to have a xenophobic administration come in after you and undo the progress that you've made, or at least chip away at the progress you're trying to make. Make these folks citizens. Like, it's it's not that difficult. It's the moral thing to do, especially during a pandemic when we don't need people being deported to countries that they're not familiar with, that they haven't been to in a very long time, especially when they've become a part of American society. So, you know, overall, Joe Biden gets credit for doing some right things when it comes to executive orders. He gets credit for trying to put a moratorium on deportations. However, he doesn't get credit for failing to act and protect these immigrants when, you know, um, they should have anticipated a right-wing attack on the progress that he was trying to make. So, again, I hope that he's actually truly trying to right the wrongs of the Obama era. But, um... If he's going to do this he has to be more aggressive you can't just allow these deportations to go on as planned because with the way that our immigration system works it's so draconian and ruthless that it kind of almost operates autonomously so you have to take charge you have to grab a hold of the steering wheel and like drastically shift it in the opposite direction if you genuinely are adamant like that you want this change So, we'll see. Um, I'll give them time because, uh, you know, we have to see how this plays out in the courts. But overall, this is sad. Like, there's no excuse for this many folks being deported during a pandemic. None. I don't want to tell anyone how to think. I hope that if you're watching this program, you're not, like, taking everything that I say as gospel, and I hope that you're thinking critically, and I hope that you're questioning and fact-checking everything that I say. But if you are one of the folks— who really do feel as if I have an influence over you and your opinion on politics, then you should definitely hate Joe Manchin. That's the one thing I want you to take away from this podcast. (laughs) The motherfucker is so smug, so insufferable, and even though him and um, Kirsten Sinema both kind of ideologically align and they're on the far right of the Democratic Party and they're unilaterally holding up any negotiations with regard to the stimulus, the way that he goes about it, makes it that much more insufferable. Because he doesn't just say, I don't agree with this because I'm conservative. He'll try to concern troll and say, well, you know, I don't think that we should means test, you know, th- this new stimulus package because I want less people to get support. I just really look out for the little guy. I care that the little guy is uh, is getting support and that we're not helping out people who don't need it. Like, it's, it's all insufferable. Um, and you can tell that even MSNBC is getting irritated with him. And you saw this subtle jab in an interview that he did on Morning Joe, where they juxtaposed the Republican governor of West Virginia and him saying he supports Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus, with Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator, saying, mm, don't really support it. Like, he, he claims to support it. Again, this is why I hate him. He's so disingenuous. But then he has reasons X, Y, and Z as to why he can't he can't get on board. Uh, watch what he has to say here and why he is not going to support the one point nine trillion dollar stimulus, at least as it stands.
0: The economy is going to sputter and we've got to get ourselves out of this mess and it's the way we need to go. right now
6: West Virginia's Republican Governor Jim Justice voicing his strong support for the administration's COVID relief bill. The state's Democratic senator, Joe Manchin, believes the stimulus needs to be more targeted, and he joins us now from the Capitol. Uh, senator Manchin, great to have you with us. So, uh, you're the man of the it. hour here. Well, uh, good. What's it, uh, it going to be? Is this going to be closer to $2 trillion <clears throat> uh, in this package, or is it going to end up being more targeted?
7: Make it, the worst thing we can do is put a, put a price tag on it. We just get what the needs of the people are and basically how we keep the economy going, how we keep people basically ready for this economy to come roaring back and they're prepared to, to be part of it. So if it's 1.9 trillion, so be it. If it's a little smaller mm-hmm. than that and we find a targeted need, and you know, that's what we're going to do. But I want it to be bipartisan. So if they think that they're going to basically, we're going to throw all caution to the wind, and, and just shove it down people's throat. That's not going to happen. Chuck Schumer said yesterday on the floor, he said, this is going to be a bipartisan process. We encourage a bipartisan process. That means Democrats and Republicans will have amendments. We have many, many opportunities to make the necessary changes and make your point. And that's what it's about. The process needs to work.
1: He really cares, you guys. It's just that he wants this to be targeted. He wants to make sure that someone who's making 150 dollars to $200,000 per year don't get this stimulus because that could be taking it away from someone who really needs it. Except here's the problem with that theory. If you make it universal and you just tax it all later, so that way if someone really is making above the income threshold that you're imposing here uh, gets that stimulus when they weren't supposed to, well, you just get it back from them. Think of it as a temporary tax break. Like, he's making this more complicated. If you genuinely cared uh, about the American people, then means testing only slows things down and you concern trolling, pretending to care about the working class and them really needing it like you're not you're not convincing anyone. And he's such a fool that he contradicted himself like within seconds. So he says, "Uh, look, the worst thing we can do is put a price tag on it. Then seconds later, he says, I want it to be bipartisan. Okay, well, you have to pick one or the other because Republicans are putting a price tag on it. They're taking Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion proposal and they're cutting it by like 75% and they're saying, this is what we want. So, you want to make sure that the American people get what they need and if it's going to be $1.9 trillion, then so be it. But at the same time, you want the Republicans to get on board, but they're saying they're not going to get on board with it. So, the question is, what are you going to do as a Democrat? Are you going to hold everything up for everyone in the country until we get at least one or two Republicans on board? Or are you actually going to do what you say you want to do, which is help the American people? It's just, it's so insufferable. He's holding the entire Democratic Party back, even more so than other corporate Democrats. Uh, The good news, however, about Joe Manchin is that he's an idiot and he is very easy to persuade. So all you have to do is, is exert a minimal amount of public pressure And he will buckle. We've seen him buckle on, you know, the direct cash payments, and he's also against the minimum wage. He doesn't want it to be fifteen dollars an hour. He wants it to be eleven dollars an hour. Um, I guarantee that if Democrats push him enough and he faces public backlash, he'll buckle on that as well. Because Joe Joe Manchin, he doesn't have like an underlying governing philosophy, like, he's kind of naive in the sense that as long as Republicans and Democrats are holding hands and singing Kumbaya, as long as whatever legislation is passed is, like, bipartisan right down the middle and that Democrats get 50% and Republicans get 50%, that's- that's all- that he cares about, because that is the most surest way that the donors who fund both parties are going to be appeased. Uh, but he he has no spine. He has no backbone. So you can get him to budge. Kirsten Sinema, on the other hand, I don't know, because she's a newer member of Congress, but we've been dealing with Joe, Manchin, Joe Manchin's bullshit for a really long time. And he is easy to manipulate. But what I want to do is I want to show you a clip of Bernie Sanders. He was on The View and he was asked his thoughts on bipartisanship. And listen to what he says because his reasoning is very different for bipartisanship and his reasoning as to why this is a necessity is a lot different than what Joe Manchin says.
2: So, uh, Bernie, um, President Biden said yesterday he's open to compromise uh, on some aspects of the nearly $2 trillion proposal uh, for COVID relief. And he met with Republicans earlier this week to hear them out. Um, you've been very clear that your priority is moving this as quickly as possible through, whether Republicans are on board or not. I have a question. What's the downside uh, of your proposal, if any? Let's say we move it right through without, without any Republicans in- involved. Is there a downside to that at all? Or should we just do it?
7: Well, Joy, look, I think we all want bipartisanship. Uh, I hope Republicans join us. But the most important (laughs) issue right now is to understand that working families in this country today are in more economic desperation than they have been since the Great Depression. I don't have to tell you, in my own city, Burlington, Vermont, which is doing better than many other locations around the country, hundreds of people have lined up in their cars for emergency food delivery help all across the country. Families are struggling to prevent eviction. In the midst of a pandemic, people can't afford to go out and find a doctor. We have a pandemic today, which is taking some 3,000 lives every single day. We're not getting the vaccines out as quickly as we can. Half of our people are living paycheck to paycheck. Millions are working for starvation wages. In other words, we face more problems today than at any time since the Great Depression. And we got to move for working families, and we got to move yesterday. And I intend to do this as quickly as we can.
1: That right there is what Joe Manchin would be saying if he actually cared about getting these checks out. You see, if you if you genuinely cared as much as you say you do, that, that interview on Morning Joe was like more than 10 minutes, I think, and the entire time he's trying to emphasize how much he really cares and he wants to help out the American people and save the economy. If you actually cared, that's what you would be saying. What Bernie Sanders said. He listed the specific reasons why We can't wait. And even though it would be wonderful to have the Republicans on board, they're not going to get on board. So the question is, do we want to actually give the American people relief now or do we want to twiddle our thumbs waiting for Republicans to find a heart and jump on board? That's that's inconceivable. It's not going to happen. So if you actually care about the American people, as you say you do, Joe Manchin, which he doesn't. There wouldn't be any stipulations. You wouldn't say, well, you know, I'm only willing to support the $1,400 checks, which they should be $2,000, if their means tested further. I'm only willing to support the minimum wage if it's, you know, $11 an hour. I'm only willing to support this $1.9 trillion stimulus package if it has bipartisan support. These are all excuses that amount to nothing more than you concern trolling and ultimately getting in the way of your party delivering relief to the American people. So what's it going to be? I think we all know where Joe Manchin's loyalties lie. He is a Republican. He cares about his donors. He couldn't care less about the people in West Virginia. He's a political opportunist and he loves that he has so much power right now, right? He's kind of like always going to be the swing vote so long as the Senate is split 50-50. So he loves that whenever Democrats propose something, it basically has to go through him. Oh, what's that? You want to do this? Incremental reform? Well, it needs to be even more incremental and it needs to be further means tested or I'm not going to get on board. Without me, you can't pass it. Like he loves all this. So if he likes this attention, then I think that we should give him exactly what he wants. Give him that attention that he's so desperate for. Uh, Pressure him. Give him a call. Let his office know that he's holding up money that you desperately need there needs to be a massive public pressure campaign and i am confident that joe manchin is someone who can budge who we can get to budge because again i don't think he's very bright kirsten Sinema, on the other hand again i don't know uh if she is a little bit more stubborn but joe manchin is stupid enough to where we can't actually control him right now he's soaking in the spotlight But uh, this isn't going to stand for very long. He's enjoying basically being the most powerful senator in Congress right now. But uh, that isn't going to last very long because the peasants are going to revolt if you give them nothing but crumbs and they're starving. So get it together. Shut the fuck up. Stop making up excuses and pass the goddamn steam list, Joe Manchin, for fuck's sake. So, even though some individuals, such as Mitch McConnell, has uh, condemned Marjorie Taylor Greene, the new QAnon Republican within their ranks, without mentioning her, you know, other Republicans, their response, after being at least seemingly embarrassed by her, is now kind of just, eh. Because uh, Republican leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, has decided to not take action against her. When it comes to stripping her of her committee assignments and on top of that reportedly like half of the republican caucus gave her a standing ovation when she stood up to speak during a closed door meeting so this party has gone full mask off they're literally embracing someone now who liked a facebook post threatening to kill nancy pelosi someone who's openly hostile and vicious and wants violence against her own colleagues, Republicans are like, sure. So if you were wondering like what it would be like if Roy Moore was elected, a pedophile, or if a KKK member or someone who self-identifies as a Nazi was elected, how would the Republican Party react? And I think that the answer would be, meh. But behind closed doors, they'd be pretty excited about it. This is the Republican Party. They are absolutely insane. Now, it's funny, the way that they're defending themselves, rather than running away from Marjorie Taylor Greene, which is kind of what they were doing at first, now they're embracing her and they're using whataboutism to defend themselves. So now they're saying, okay, well, we have Marjorie Taylor Greene. She might be a little bit out there, but what about Ilhan Omar? So that's what's happening now. Fox News and Republicans are drawing this false equivalency, trying to compare... A Cuban conspiracy theorist who wants other members of Congress murdered to a Muslim woman who is progressive. Yeah. So in an interview with Chris Hayes on MSNBC, Ilhan Omar responded to this. And uh, what she said was great because not only did she shoot down this bizarre idea that she's comparable to Marjorie Taylor Greene in any way, uh, but she said what we're all thinking about the Republican Party. It's nice to hear someone who's elected to Congress actually say this.
4: Representative, Congresswoman, did you uh, expect that you would be pulled into this because you have become kind of the uh, a, a go to figure in these moments for the Republican Party?
8: Sadly, this is the Republican playbook. We saw it with Donald Trump that anytime they are faced with consequences for their actions to undermine our democracy, they blame Muslims, they blame immigrants, they blame black people, they blame women. I just happen to embody all of these identities. And I just wanna make sure, uh, Chris, that we are clear on this. This is not about me and it should not be about me. This is about a member of the Republican caucus who has repeatedly incited violence and Republicans can't just wave a magic wand uh, and attack the black congresswoman.
4: Uh, It was notable that um, there's been a fundraising effort using you. Uh, the, uh, the fundraising he complaining, the Democrats are trying to expel me from Congress. And it was interesting, the Democrat behind her uh, there is you, uh, not, you know, Speaker Pelosi or House leadership. I think everyone understands what that's about. I guess my question is this, there's this dynamic that functions now where she will use this attention, right? and And this sort of oppositional to fundraise, like, do you think about breaking out of this cycle and how to do it, if there's any way out of it?
8: No. I mean, you know, the the Republicans uh, truly have lost their way. Um, Their party is destroyed. Uh, Their base now is conspiracy theorists. It's cowards. It's opportunists. It's grifters. And sadly, um, they're becoming the Looney Tunes. You know, these are uh, people who we can't take serious. They're not here to do the people's business. They are here um, to just be uh, obstructionists and make a mockery um, of not just our government, but our country.
4: There is, um, of course, uh, this individual congresswoman who is uh, the subject of, of this question today in this House Rules Committee attracted attention. She ran because of this ad with her with a gun next to you and other uh, Democratic uh, lawmakers. And, you know, it just seems to me that there and you tweeted about this, about feeling like this sense of threat or menace. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talked about this. We saw it embodied in January 6th. This is not theoretical, but just the degree to which the idea of physical intimidation, the, the threat of violence, of menace, of armed people has entered into the Oxygen, the atmosphere of the building and the place you work that should be a question of sort of de- debating politics?
8: Yeah, I mean, and so many people have asked, you know, could there be violence? Could this lead to violence? And, you know, they seem to forget that five people have already lost their lives on uh, in the events of January 6th, including a Capitol Police officer. Uh, um, hundreds more people uh, could have. We currently have members of Congress who are moving their offices away uh, because they fear for their lives. Uh, You know, Alex talked about the trauma that she's living with and has lived with since January 6th. I sent a text message um, to my ex-husband and told him, you know, if I don't make it out, please make sure you tell my children I love them. This is not a joke, this is not a game. These people are threatening um, to our uh, environment. They are threatening our ability to do our work. Uh, They are um, really making it hard for people to survive and exist uh, in a free democracy where debate and discourse is supposed to be celebrated um, we are now living in a situation where every single caucus conversation—it's about, you know, where can we find resources for security? Uh, how are we supposed to uh, check if our panic buttons are working? You know, can we buddy up and walk the hallways because we are afraid of our own colleagues? Uh, this is insane. No other work environment that is this toxic. Um, would sustain itself, and we can't sustain ourselves as members of Congress in this situation.
1: I don't envy the position that they're in. I mean, the individuals who relentlessly attacked them on social media, and you know, called for them to be hung and assassinated. Those individuals have infiltrated Congress. They're now their colleagues. So how do you how do you deal with that? Like, how does that body function when you have folks in there? who literally want to see violence be committed against the opposite party. Like, it's just such a weird thing to see. Uh, Now, I love that uh, Ilhan Omar said, the Republican Party, uh, they've lost their way. They're becoming the Looney Tunes. Now, she's wrong because the Republican Party, they never had any sense whatsoever. They have always been lost because conservatism is an inherently morally bankrupt ideology. But to say that they're becoming Looney Tunes, that's absolutely correct. Because this isn't just like the party who brazenly looks out for the rich and gives them tax cuts. This is the party of absolute psychopaths. Folks who believe not just like conspiracy theories that are a little bit kooky, but like the most dumbest conspiracy theories, not even interesting conspiracy theories, literal QAnon conspiracy theories. A five-year-old would probably have more sense than to think, well, maybe I shouldn't believe that like one random person on the internet is giving us all this inside insight to what the Trump administration is doing. Like the dumbest of the dumb, like that's what they've embraced. This is their brand now. But guess what? There's a demand for it, hence why folks like Donald Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert are becoming increasingly popular, because there is enough Americans who think that way. So, what's an issue in America that we all have to kind of think about long term is how do we deprogram people, get them to not believe outrageously stupid and idiotic conspiracy theories, get folks to embrace science and logic and rational thinking. A lot of folks operate using emotion, and that's true for all human beings. But how do we get them to just have some basic level of common sense once again? Like, I don't know if it's possible so long as the Republican Party props up people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. I don't know. Now, Ilhan Omar is correct that, you know, this is kind of the Republican Party's go-to playbook. They always point to marginalized communities as the scapegoat. It doesn't matter what the situation is. I mean, the Republican Party, their entire critique is— The issues that you are experiencing as a working-class American, it's not because of our economic system. It's not because of capitalism. It's not because of our corrupted institutions. It's because of these little guys with no money and no power. You didn't lose your job because of greedy corporations who are outsourcing your job or who are paying you, you know, slave wages, you lost your job because an immigrant came in and took your job. This is always their go-to. It's always. So of course, it makes sense that they'd replicate that at the congressional level and say, well, you know, it's, it's not actually Marjorie Taylor Greene who's the issue. It's Ilhan Omar, this other member of Congress, because she looks different. She's brown and she wears a hijab. So blame her. That's what they do. Like, uh, this party is the party of white supremacists. And I'm not saying that all Republicans are racists, but if you are racist, you're almost certainly going to be a Republican. And you may even think that they're not racist enough for you, hence why there's this sudden need to create the Patriot Party, because that's what Donald Trump wants. Like, He wants this little group of sycophants and cultists who all really believe the same thing and nobody is willing to question their beliefs. To like form this political force because the republican party even it can't contain the craziness like they're they're trying to they're trying to like be somewhat respectable but they can't any longer because it's like the mask has come off fully now i do have to say that part of the problem is that democrats have enabled this attack on ilhan omar either wittingly or unwittingly because they never come to her defense when she's smeared like how many times has she been attacked by Republicans who claim that she is pro-terrorist or pro-9-11 because they disingenuously take her out of context, take something that she said out of context, where she's basically making a point about how racial profiling is a thing that happens to Muslims because of the 9-11 terrorist attack. They take that, they clip it out, and they say, oh, well, she said because some people did something. She's downplaying it. She supports terrorism, or if she criticizes Israel, the government of Israel, not the Israeli people, not Jewish people, but if she criticizes the government of Israel, who currently is doing a genocide against Palestinians, doing a modern-day apartheid, well, that's anti-Semitic. And Democrats never have her back. They target her as well. So look, it- I don't think that we really need to even entertain this equivalence between marjorie taylor green and ilhan omar uh, one of them is completely off her rocker and the other says things about politics that is politically incorrect she says things about the israeli government and the american government u.s imperialism that a lot of folks don't want to hear so because she's politically incorrect they'll equate her with someone Who is batshit insane who should probably quite literally be in an insane asylum and i'm not saying that to you know use crazy as a pejorative i'm saying that because she genuinely needs help she's not mentally fit to be in congress i think that's that's pretty obvious
8: socialism
1: Hello everyone, I'm here with Seattle City Council member Shama Sawant representing the third district of the city of Seattle. She was elected back in 2013 and ever since she was elected as the first socialist in I think over a hundred years to serve on Seattle City Council, there's been constant efforts from capitalist forces, big business to take her down. But in spite of all of the opposition, she's been incredibly successful. She led the charge to pass the first in the nation minimum wage of $15 an hour she led the charge to pass the first in the nation ban on chemical weapons used for crowd control against protesters a lot that we saw during the George Floyd protests and she did a lot of other things and now the latest effort after Amazon spent 1.5 million to take her down in 2019 and failed at that now the right in the city of Seattle Seattle's elites are trying to take her down with a recall effort, with four charges in particular. Here to talk about that is Councilwoman Shama Sawant. Uh, Councilwoman, thank you so much for coming on the program.
9: Thank you so much for having me, Mike.
1: Your case here is really interesting because you have you have not been deterred. You've had nothing but nonstop opposition, not just from the right, but from the Democratic Party establishment as well. You know, the the mayor of Seattle, Jenny Durkin, is a Democrat. So you have fought tooth and nail against these attacks, and you would think that that would kind of knock somebody off their course, but you've been really successful. And I think that you you've been one of the most effective members of city council throughout the country, and I, I think that what happens here is a microcosm of what could happen for the broader national and even international socialist movement. So, can you talk a little about a bit about the opposition that you faced, especially with regard to this latest uh, obviously bogus recall effort? It's not the first time, as I alluded to. I also want to note that you have faced uh, dozens of ethics complaints, all of which are bogus. You faced defamation lawsuits because you referred to um, killings by police as murder. Chey Taylor and particular in seattle uh so talk about this latest effort to basically uh stop you from uh changing seattle for the better
9: as you correctly said mike ever since we were first elected in 2013 and of course we won the first re-election in 2015 and our second re-election in 2019 despite the concerted efforts by amazon and big business and i would say also the city's democratic establishment to try and drive socialists out of city hall they didn't succeed in that effort and now they're trying a do-over of the election result that they did not like in 2019, because there is no reality to the charges that they have leveled against me. And in fact, it's actually concerning, especially in the context of heightened right populism and the far right riots at the Capitol building in Washington, DC, the emboldening of a certain current of right wing, the death threats against uh, left elected officials like AOC and Ilhan Omar and Cori Bush. I've had death threats directed against me recently, and the Seattle police have done virtually nothing to address those threats, to figure out where they're coming from. And so the recall effort against us is happening in this context where the Legitimacy of the capitalist system is at an all-time low. Young generations are looking for an alternative to this rotten system because, especially the pandemic, but in general, the system has exposed itself as completely incapable of addressing even basic needs of humanity. Look at the crisis with vaccination, the pandemic, let alone larger questions of the climate catastrophe, for example. And so in this context, it is important From the ruling class's standpoint, it's important that they try to uh, attack the left, but especially the socialist left. And most importantly, their need is to attack any successful examples where movements have fought back and won. I mean, it's bad enough if you have the courage and the audacity to fight back. But if you win, you should expect that the ruling class, the democratic establishment, big business, the right wing will come after you. And these recall charges are happening in that context. And I would say they are really an example of how they, what they fear is and what they hate, what the ruling class hates is not only the actual victories we have won, which is making Seattle the first major city to win the $15 minimum wage. We just won the historic Amazon tax on big businesses to fund social housing and a Green New Deal. We have won a whole series of renters' rights that were, thought impossible to win before we were were elected. But what they fear most of all is not just these individual victories, which they would like to roll back, of course, and we know that they will attempt to roll back many of these if they succeed in the recall effort. But what they uh, fear most of all is the example that we have set that it is possible for movements and not just movement, but the socialist movement to get organized, win its own office in the midst of political domination by the corporate ruling class, win victories despite the onslaught of their opposition, and then spread that example throughout the nation. $15 an hour went nationwide, and now the Biden administration is being forced to talk about it. That's what they fear the most, the example of the um, emboldenment of ordinary people, of working class people, and also the concrete, Vision that we have shown that you can fight if you get organized in democratic movements where rank and file are empowered. That is how we won the tax Amazon victory. Uh, and so it's it's crucial that the ruling class push back against this and for for them for for to to defeat the uh, future efforts of movements. and i I can say with a lot of confidence that if they succeed in this recall effort against us, they will not stop there. They will go after the socialist left and the broader left, uh, and uh, that's why everybody, all of us have a stake in, uh, in uh, defeating this recall.
1: Yeah. And I want to just point everyone to an article that you uh, wrote for Jacobin. This was published in, I think, November of last year. Um, it's titled Democrats and the right are attacking me and left movements everywhere. I would highly encourage everyone to read this article because it, she really goes through um, extensively how they've been attacking her consistently. Um, and, and really with Seattle, it's really interesting because this is where Amazon is headquartered. Um, you have the Mayor of Seattle, she took three hundred fifty thousand dollars from Amazon. I believe when she was elected in two thousand seventeen. You see Amazon funding uh to the tune of over a million dollars a campaign against the socialist city council member. I mean this entire city has been captured by big business, and you have kind of like forced everyone to take their masks off to where even the Democratic Party establishment in Seattle is attacking you and coming after you. And the only way that you've really managed to uh, hold that seat and hang on to power is by really utilizing the grassroots. And I think that the way that we are successful here and we stop this effort is by standing in solidarity with you and activating the grassroots. So can you tell us what we can do Um, if we live in Seattle or somewhere else in the country? How do we stop this recall effort? What can we do to help this cause? Because we want to have that seat remain in your control, because you're already doing so much and as you said like the 15 dollar an hour minimum wage that biden's administration is proposing uh this is kind of being modeled after what you all did in seattle which they don't they don't want to see this because success it, it kind of leads to like a domino effect we've seen this time and again uh we're seeing it with you know marijuana legalization so the last thing they want is for you to make more progress and then pressure other cities and even you know congress to act so how do we stop this
9: I think you're right uh, about what you said in terms of the domino effect. Even look at the, what happened in the recent election. Florida, which decisively went for Donald Trump, and that's a dangerous trend. The, these are the same voters, some of those same voters who also voted in the $15 minimum wage in that same election. What that shows you is how, what's at stake for us you know, in defeating this recall, but also oh, the larger goal of why there's an urgency to build the left, is not only because there is a real potential with especially the younger generations getting politicized to win real victories like Medicare for all and a Green New Deal, although there will be uphill fights. But it also the Florida example also shows that in reality, so many millions of working people who might have voted for Trump are actually going to be open to a real working class strategy of fight back. and it's in the absence of any real left alternative that they end up becoming fodder for Donald Trump's right reactionary ideology. And so the best way really of stemming the increasing tide of right populism is for us to urgently build a strong left and a socialist left nationally. And defeating the recall attempt here is part of that national effort. And so regardless of where you live, whether it's in Seattle or somewhere outside Seattle, please go to kshamasolidarity.org, that's my first name, K-S-H-A-M-A, solidarity.org, to get more information about our campaign, our, as you said, grassroots campaign to defeat this recall attempt. And if you live in Seattle, we absolutely want your help more directly right now because of the lockdown with phone banking and reaching people in a socially distanced way, but later, we will need uh, a door knocking and face to face effort. Again, socially distanced way to keep make sure we're uh, we're keeping everyone safe. But nationally, if you're not in Seattle, then we do need your efforts with fundraising. So please send us your individual donations. But also, if you're able to host a fundraiser where you are, please contact our campaign and we will absolutely help you set it up.
1: And we'll have all of the links to that down in the description box down below as well as on the and- screen as well.
9: And, and also I would say, uh, please uh, reach out to left leaders, labor leaders, social movement leaders in your area and urge them to publicly endorse our solidarity campaign because it's that kind of public solidarity that we are going to need to help ordinary people in our district who are ultimately going to be voting on this recall for them to understand that the left is united on this and that an attack against Shama Sawant is not an attack against her personally, but an attack on the left overall, an attack on working people, and that if the recall goes ahead, it will be a setback for all of us. And so I'm really happy that uh, important uh, leaders and people who have sacrificed themselves for decades, like Noam Chomsky, have endorsed our campaign. Labour leaders like Sarah Nelson have endorsed our campaign. DSA elected leaders like Julia Salazar in New York, Mike Connolly in Boston, and Byron Sikcho Lopez and Rosanna Rodriguez in Chicago, who are Chicago elected aldermen, they have all publicly pledged their support for our campaign. We need that kind of support from leaders nationwide.
1: Yeah, this is what solidarity looks like. I think that if you have um, members of Congress, even with really large platforms, such as members of the squad, Representative Alexandria Kaiser cortez if she were to come out and use this uh, platform to draw attention to this, it really could make wonders. Uh, in terms of change. So this is really what solidarity is all about. Uh, I wanted to pick your brain for a little bit because you've been so successful. And I kind of saw your strategy as a mini version of the strategy that Bernie Sanders was running on. Like he always stated that if he were to be elected president, unfortunately, that didn't happen, but he would be the organizer in chief. And he'd take the grassroots movement to the White House. And that's basically what you've done at the city council level. So I think that you being as effective as you have been, you have a lot of insight into strategy. Um, So I wanted to ask you, from an individual standpoint, as, you know, just people who are consumers of political news, what we do to uh, affect change should we sign up for organizations? Should we work for campaigns? And then I also want to pivot to at the congressional level, because lately there's been a lot of talk about force the vote and members of the squad potentially withholding votes to uh, to uh, basically force a vote on Medicare for all. Uh, And this is over, but I still think that it's an important conversation to have because we're all trying to figure out what the correct strategy is going forward and how we actually can affect change and you being able to affect change using the grassroots to kind of uh, fuel you. I think you have a lot of insight here. So can you kind of speak to that?
9: Yes, I think that's a, a key question that people have to grapple with. How is it that we were able to win these victories? And is it true that you can only do this locally? You can't do this nationally? I think I would first of all reject that false dichotomy. I think it's a question of strategy, no matter whether you're talking about local movements and local demands or nationally issues like Medicare for All, like a Green New Deal, and ending fossil fuel use nationwide. I think that we are at a we are at a time when, when a lot of uh, Democrats also use similar-sounding movement language, where they will also say, "I'm part of a movement." They will occasionally also maybe show up at strike picket lines. And I think we have to understand that there is a fundamental difference between what the Democratic Party offers and what we have accomplished in Seattle as a socialist alternative elected office, where, as you were saying, we we have specifically used a movement building approach for our office, and that means a very specific thing. And I really agree that Bernie Sanders uh, would would have been, uh, you know, it was that that is where people wanted to go. Uh, and the fact that the Democratic establishment fought him to the nails shows which side they are on, really, because he would have defeated Donald Trump. And not only that, he would have gone far, far, far. The more by saying, you know, by as he said, he would be an organizer in chief. But what we have done here is not just use the movement language in order to co-opt it and to sort of deceptively use the grassroots in order to carry on the status quo of corporate politics while uttering some kind and compassionate words. What we have done is, in a concrete way, used our office to build social movements, to build larger movements alongside rank-and-file labor, non-unionized workers, socialist and community members, and, and that also goes into the question of force the vote, and I'll come, that, come to that in a second. But I just wanted to give a couple of concrete examples of what I mean when I say genuinely building movements. So when I was first elected in 2013 and I took office in 2014, the Democrats on the city council, and, and we should keep in mind, it's not just the mayor of Seattle that's Democrat. All the other eight council members are part of the Democratic establishment. I'm the lone socialist. And so when I was elected, The Democrats on the City Council made it very clear that in private conversations and also with their public statements often that we were not going to win the $15 minimum wage, which was the main demand that we ran our campaign on, and that City Hall ran on their terms. And yet, six months later, we had won $15 an hour. And those same council members had been forced to vote yes. And big business that had fought fiercely against the $15 minimum wage were forced to back down, at least on that demand. And the way we did that was soon after I was elected, I and myself and Socialist Alternative, our organization, many left labor unions, together we launched the 15 Now grassroots movement. Now, it was not a coincidence that we won 15, we established 15 Now and that we won $15 minimum wage. 15 Now and Socialist Alternative and rank and file left labor organizers were the backbone of winning 15 dollars an hour. And so what we did through the 15 hour movement was we launched uh, action conferences citywide, we launched neighborhood action groups, we activated ordinary people to come and fight for this, explaining to them why it is important that their involvement mattered and that it was not going to go, it was not going to be possible for me alone to fight on this and win this that my real strength came from ordinary people Marching on the streets in the 15 now rallies, but also coming to City Hall, bringing this was pre COVID, remember? So, you know, people could actually come uh, and uh, organize inside City Hall. And so, we really completely changed the dynamic in City Hall. It used to be this ivory tower where pro big business council members would sit and have polite conversations without any workers and not in the interest of workers. We completely upended this kind of pro big business ivory tower and we brought the people's voice into city hall. It was the similar way in which we won all the renters rights we have won and also the Amazon tax that we won last year. I mean, again, it was no coincidence that we won the Amazon tax in the thick of the Black Lives Matter movement last year because it was that movement that really put pressure on the democratic establishment and they had to make all kinds of promises which they have since walked back. But on the Amazon tax, they were forced to actually pass a city council Amazon tax because a specific tactic that we used in our tax Amazon movement was to have the threat of a ballot initiative, but not just a ballot initiative in name, but a viable threat of a ballot initiative. And we did that by collecting 30,000 signatures on the tax Amazon ballot initiative, 20,000 of which were collected at directly at the George Floyd protests at the rate of a thousand a day. That gives you the tremendous support we had in the grassroots, especially among black and brown working people for this kind of tax. Basically the idea that all these big businesses that are profited from this city's prosperity at the expense of workers need to pay at least a minimum tax in order for us to be able to afford social housing, and Green New Deal programs. And I will mention that we used the same strategy in tax Amazon movement that we did in 15 Now, which is we launched a grassroots movement that was genuinely democratically organized. We had action conferences, each of which was attended by hundreds of community members, labor union members, non-unionized workers, and even progressive small business owners, faith leaders. And we debated all the important points of the movement in those action conferences openly and all members of the action conferences, they voted on all those important points. When was the last time the Democratic Party establishment invited you or me to a grassroots meeting where we got to vote on the things that affected us? And so that that example of a democratically organized movement where even the informally appointed movement leaders were held accountable to the rank and file of the movement, that's what's important. So I think that shows how concretely, this is different from the movement type language that many now progressive Democrats have started to use. And I think the challenge really should be that it's not enough to say you are on the side of movements. What are you actually doing to build those movements? And on top of that, I think this also requires, and this is how we are also fundamentally different than the Democratic Party, is that we use our position not to, you know, on the one hand, say we are on the side of working people, and on, on the other hand, be uh, giving over to the different establishments for all their betrayals. No, we don't do that. We speak, we use our office to speak openly about the betrayals that they carry out and force them, we put pressure on them to then vote the right way, because then when we build that movement using our seat, it uh, extracts a political price from them for voting, the wrong way by betraying working people. And I think that connects to the question on force the vote because I don't, contrary to how it was presented, I don't think that the reluctance and ultimately uh, opposition to that kind of tactic where, you know, hold the democratic establishment, including Nancy Pelosi, publicly accountable on a Medicare for all. uh, I don't think that the disagreement from the squad and some of the DSA leaders that it was a disagreement on individual tactics. Now, obviously, debates on tactics are completely fair and necessary on the left. Absolutely, we should be doing that. But I don't think this was based on a tactical disagreement. I think this was based on a fundamental disagreement of the what we believe is a fundamental need, which is to have head-on combat and bold challenge to the democratic establishment, because we feel that this conflict is completely unavoidable if we hope to win any kind of reforms like Medicare for all, let alone deeper change. And I'll mention, you know, it's not as if uh, Congress members like AOC don't understand what we're talking about. I mean, when she was asked, why, why vote for the Trump impeachment if everybody's on your side already? What she said, and I agree with her, she said, sometimes these votes create real political pressure that forces developments. Sometimes we vote for the historical record to let future generations know we did everything we could. I agree with every word of that. But what's missing here is, uh, on the on the same co- Congress member's part, the willingness to direct that same challenge to the edifice of the democratic establishment and corporate stalwarts like Nancy Pelosi. And I think that's where the real challenge lies. Uh, we don't have to uh, really, uh, the test is not whether they are against Donald Trump. They're obviously against Donald Trump, and we all should be, and we should be building the left to counter the rise of the right uh, wing and right populism. But... The only way we will be able to do that is if we also put our elected leaders to the additional test, which is the key test, is are you willing to take on the conflict with the democratic establishment?
1: Yeah, I think you're really speaking to one of the main grievances that a lot on the left have with members of the squad Um, and, and the way that I kind of gauge how to support someone running for Congress, because I bring on a lot of people running for Congress, is I-, I look at their platform and if they check all the boxes, they support Medicare for All, Green New Deal, you know, a decriminalizing drugs, sex work, all that, then I think, okay, this is great. But I think that all of this event, uh, the events leading up to force the vote and also before that as well, it kind of led a lot on the left to reevaluate what we look for in a leader and it does require more than just being correct on the policies it really does require you to fundamentally challenge leadership and that's one thing that's lacking i don't know like i don't necessarily believe that this is a character flaw with members of the squad what i think is lacking and you can kind of like um help me out with this in your take is i think that what's lacking is that there is this disconnect between members of congress and the grassroots and you know after you use the grassroots to get you elected you fundraise you know using small dollar donations Once you get to Congress, the movement building is over. Like, it seems as if, like, the movement has accomplished its goal. We got this individual who agrees with us elected, but then that's it. And I think that what you really uh, demonstrate is that you have to keep building the movement. Like, getting to Congress and using the grassroots, that's really only step one. That's just the very beginning, because if you don't keep that movement activated and grow it, then the amount of power that you have as a member of Congress will be diminished, especially when you're facing, you know, these Democratic Party leaders who have a lot of institutional power, who have the media on their side and capitalist forces on their side. So is that kind of like, do you think that that describes the main issue? Because I I would totally agree that my main criticism is that I want to see members of the squad really take on Democratic Party leadership. And it's a little bit frustrating because the only members of Congress that actually do challenge leadership seem to be the more conservative Democrats. Um and usually they don't they don't get marginalized in the way that we fear the left would so do you think like if you could give any advice to members of the squad uh given your experience what do you think they would need to do to actually get us medicare for all like are they being too savvy, trying to play 8D chess with leadership and, you know, butter up leadership and get them to not hate them. Like, what do you think they need to do? Because I think this is really important because the ultimate goal, the reason why we're putting folks in Congress is to actually get change. So what would be the main thing that you would change or, or the main piece of advice that you give to AOC, Corey Bush and other members of the squad?
9: I think it's uh, first of all, I think it's crucial that we are living in a time when in order to be, in order to have any kind of progressive credentials, the times have changed enough and consciousness has advanced enough that even Democrats are having to check, as you said, check all the boxes. And now the Democratic Party has a genuine uh, elected representatives who consider themselves left or socialist. And so I don't, I don't question the, genuineness of the intent of many of these Congress members who have been elected who are now called the SW- squad, I think it was uh, really a positive step forward that so many of them have gotten elected through not taking any corporate money, you know, that that really uh, the campaign, especially of Bernie Sanders in 2016, really set this, you know, it sort of set the watermark of what what actually constitutes even a basic idea of who's progressive, let alone who's on the left. And so it is, it is actually a step forward for our movements that it has put that, that much pressure on politics in the United States, that now uh, having to take only grassroots donations, having to say publicly that I support Medicare for all, I support the Green New Deal, is a sort of a test for uh, elected officials to get the support of the younger generation and of the left. Uh, but I think what it shows also is that you cannot just stop there you also have, as you said, very it was spot on what you said, which is that uh, as long as you have elected representatives, however genuine, let's not question their intention, as long as you have elected representatives who believe that once they enter office, they have to limit themselves to whatever is possible while not making the democratic establishment angry at them, that is a dead end. As long as you have elected representatives who think that, that is the way to go. It doesn't matter how well intentioned they are. So I don't think we should be having a debate on whether Agreed. or not AOC is well intentioned. I truly believe she is well intentioned. Mm-hmm. As you said earlier, Mike, this is a question of strategy for the left. So let's, uh, let's not make this about, uh, you know, I don't think the left should be engaging in debate about whether or not uh, she is well intentioned. The question is, is she willing to do what it will take to win Medicare for all? And that's why as I said uh, earlier, the question is not to her, the question is to ordinary people. What are, How are we going to get organized in order to make sure that those elected officials who run as progressives then go into office and don't think that this is about them trying to curry favor with Nancy Pelosi or any even the middle layer of the democratic establishment. And I think uh, the other thing that you said actually is quite perceptive, where you said that it seems to you that mostly the challenge that Nancy Pelosi gets, such as it is, comes from more conservative members of the Democratic Party, not from the left of the Democratic Party, and how they seem to don't get marginalized. Well, the reason the conservatives don't get marginalized is because they have the entire capitalist ruling class on their side. They are speaking for Wall Street. Yes, they don't get marginalized, and they are both, precisely because they have the entire might of the billionaire class and the multimillionaires and the millionaires and also of the right wing on their side. So that poses a concrete question. What are we, our elected officials, going to have on your your side? And that's the question that we have answered so successfully in Seattle, where we went in crystal clear with zero illusions that somehow I, myself, with just my personal qualities and my determination and my courage and my self sacrifice i am going to win over the democratic establishment no i mean obviously personal characteristics are truly important i won't i won't minimize them but uh, the most important thing that's different about us compared to the squad for example is that we understood from day one that the the other politicians you know the democratic party politicians on the city council have big business and the entire might of the ruling class on their side, which means the only way we will be able to change this completely ruthless status quo of balance of forces is we have to have forces on our side. And where do those forces come from? The actual movement, ordinary people on the ground. And so the only way we will win Medicare for all, for example, is if we have a similar strategy at the national level that we had in Seattle to win $15 an hour, Amazon tax and all the renters' rights victories we have won, where we understood that our role, our entire role, is to unambiguously and unabashedly build the strength of movements, and that in, in, that includes calling out Democrats when they betray. So, in other words, uh, voting for Nancy Pelosi is a non-starter. The left in Congress, especially now, because numerically, they hold the balance of vote. For them, they should not be voting for Nancy Pelosi. They should be actually fighting, building a real fight back against the Democratic establishment. But the only way they will be able to do it and not get marginalized is if they understand that they have to concretely build movement. So in other words, we built a 15 now grassroots movement. We built the tax Amazon grassroots movement. Similarly, we will need a Medicare for All grassroots movement where AOC and the squad members are actually calling for national actions, calling for a march to Washington, calling for action conferences uh, in multiple cities throughout the nation where ordinary people, progressive labor unions, many other left leaders can stand on their side and really uh, create a dynamic where far from being marginalized, you could, the left in Congress could actually put serious pressure that Nancy Pelosi's establishment, not to mention the Republican Party, would come to fear. But that is not going to happen as long as we have the left, no matter how genuine that is, thinking that they have uh, they have only so much room to maneuver and that they have to, at the end of the day, vote for Nancy Pelosi. Look, this, this is another form of lesser evilism. And lesser evilism, in my view, is a permanent defensive posture for the left. If we if we adopt lesser evilism, then its logic is endless. No year, no month, no day will be the right time for you to go up against the establishment. So we have to dispense with lesser evilism and understand that you know 70 million people voted for Donald Trump. How are we going to win them over? It is by building mass movements around demands that they will agree with. Many of them will agree with us on Medicare for All, green new jobs, ending renter debt, which is now becoming a huge crisis, ending student debt and really building that grassroots effort.
1: Yeah, I think that really you are hitting on all the points and answering the questions that we've kind of been asking ourselves. Like for me, I've I've been... Trying to wonder and, and like reassess my theory of change after Bernie Sanders lost the primary in 2020, and thinking like how do we ever get to this point to where we we can get Medicare for all? You know, um, I don't think we're gonna abolish capitalism anytime soon, but at least rein it in a little bit more and move closer and closer towards social democracy for now. Um, and I think that really the question or the answer rather, it's always been right in front of us. It's not a matter of like, well, how much more members of the squad do we need? to start, you know, flexing our muscle in Congress. Do we need four more, 10 more? It's a matter of we need uh, (laughs) movements. We need people to be activated. And, you know, to me, I think it's as little uh, or as simple as really even organizing people in your own communities. If we all do this, then we could have a huge effect at the aggregate level. It's just a matter of like trying to relearn bad behaviors because i think that a lot of us myself included we've been kind of like hyper focused on electoral politics from the standpoint of like elections and politicians and i think it makes sense why we focused on that because we were this close to the white house so it's like when you have almost you know um the most amount of power in this system you know it makes you feel as if a lot more things are are possible but you kind of have to go back to the drawing board once that you know is out of the question and think how do we actually get the change and it's going to come from you know the bottom up and not the top down and i think that if people really internalize that and they use that to guide themselves you know going forward to fight for change then i think everything will be um it's not going to be smooth uh to say the least but i think that it'll make more sense um to have that
9: perspective i I would say though that uh i don't i don't believe that we were this close to uh getting bernie sanders elected i i it's two things. One, were there tens of millions of people absolutely electrified by his message of a political revolution against the billionaire class? Absolutely, yes. Was there a real opening for the left? Absolutely, yes. But was it going to happen through the Democratic Party? No. In fact, when he, when Bernie Sanders, a socialist alternative, my organization, and I, we supported Bernie Sanders both in 2016 and, and last year. And... I've spoken at his rallies, you know, campaign rallies, both times. But when he was about to announce his candidacy in 2016, uh, in a, at a public forum on, on the climate change in New York City in Manhattan, I asked him publicly to run not as a Democratic Party candidate but as an independent candidate. And obviously, he didn't agree, and he ran as a Democrat. And I think it's a very simple, uh, calcul- uh, it's very simple calculation here, if you will run in a party that whose establishment is aligned with the billionaire class how can that be the party that will tolerate a campaign against the billionaire class it is as simple as that it's not uh, you know we should we should uh, we should understand that this is this is the essence of politics and this is something all working people can understand it is not something that's inaccessible to them you don't have to have a phd to get a very simple fact it's a question of you know, what logic you're following. And I think one of the main components of why we were able to do it differently and show a different example is because I am not part of a party. I'm not a member of a party that is opposed to the agenda that I'm running on, which is for the working class. I am a part of Socialist Alternative, which itself is, you know, it's a a socialist organization that is made up of rank-and-file activists who are all have democratic rights within the organization, who discuss and debate all important questions such as should we run a candidate, who the candidate should be, what the campaign platform should be. It is not done by one elite individual. Uh, And furthermore, Socialist Alternative itself is rooted in the wider social movement. Our members are members of the working class. They are women. They are people of color. They are ordinary people. They are grocery store workers, Amazon warehouse workers, tech workers, educators, librarians. These are these are the people who are rooted in the social movement themselves. I myself, you know, I'm, I'm a teacher by profession. I'm an economist and teacher by profession, and I'm a member of the teachers union. And so uh, I think all of the questions that you raised, Mike, they bring up the one of, I think, the most important point, which is that in Seattle, Socialist Alternative and me being part of Socialist Alternative has been the absolute backbone of everything we have been able to achieve. Because having an own, my own organization with me, an organization furthermore that is rooted in the working class, makes sure that I am never alone. I may be one in, on the dais with eight other democratic establishment people who may oppose me on or attempt to oppose the working class agenda that we bring forward, but what they are going up against is not just me. They're going up against Socialist Alternative and the working class that Socialist Alternative is rooted in. And so really, many of the uh, questions of organizing for Medicare for All also bring up the question of uh, how can we do that inside the Democratic Party? Uh, In my view, we need a new party for the working class, a party that is not organized, as you said, not organized top-down. But is democratically organized where actually not as an aspiration, but actually members of that party can hold their elected officials accountable. But not only that, a party that is rooted in social movements and is not just simply an election running machine.
1: So I want to pick your brain on this a little bit, um, if if you have a little bit more time, because I actually disagree. I don't think that Bernie Sanders should have run outside of the Democratic Party, even if I wanted that to happen, and even if he wouldn't have those institutional barriers that prevent change. The problem is that, and I've kind of gone back and forth on this over the last couple of years, is even though at the local level, I think it is possible to to subvert Duverger's law, how... How can we do this? Um, how do we actually get a third party to be viable, given our majoritarian electoral system? Because I, I was of the thinking, and this was my reasoning in 2016 for supporting the Green Party, is that you know maybe it's the case that if we can get the Greens to five percent, they'll get national funding, and that will kind of get the ball rolling. But what I realize is that like the two party duopoly in the United States, it's almost like culturally ingrained, and so I feel like people, even leftists well, check out if you just mention, like, a third party. And I think the answer to that is electoral reform first. Because in order to have, like, a multi-party system or an alternative to what is basically, I mean, one-party rule if we're talking about capitalism in the United States, is you have to have institutions that allow for proportional representation. So what do you say to... um folks like me who think Bernie was right to run in the Democratic Party because that was the only way for him to actually win. But then when he's in as president, you can change the institutions like how do we how do we subvert Duverger's law? Is that it possible? Actually,
9: it wasn't actually a way to win because they didn't let him win. Right. I mean, sure. What 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 evidence would uh, anybody use to prove the po- hypothesis that running the, the to the Democratic Party is the only way you can win? But you didn't win. So sure. what's the evidence? Uh, but i would say that you know just starting from your original point about electoral reform obviously you know there are pros and cons of different electoral systems and i wouldn't you know i, I don't want to start a debate on those but what i will sure. say what i will offer is you know i my home country india has the kind of system that your electoral system that you're talking about proportional representation and what do we have in india We don't have just two parties, we have multiple parties. And yet, what have we seen in the same period, you know, in the same three, four decade period, what we have seen is not one of those parties actually fighting for the working class. In fact, many of the parties that used to be somewhat left-leaning or progressive have actually moved to the right, and the more right-leaning parties have now become, you know, absolutely fundamentalist and somewhat deadly to, uh, to, even basic ideas like democracy as you're seeing with the bjp and the modi regime right and so i don't know i don't actually believe that this is a you know this comes down to electoral reform in the sense that if we fix this or that electoral law then we will be able to run left campaigns and get somebody to win as president in you know some somebody like bernie sanders i don't actually believe that and and going back to my um, account of how when i asked bernie sanders Uh, That was in November of 2014, I believe, in Manhattan, the day before the big people's climate march, uh, that I believe you should run as an independent because I don't believe that running inside a party that is off the billionaire class will allow you to run a political revolution against the billionaire class. And Bernie Sanders' response was something along the lines of, well, I don't want to run an educational campaign. You know, I don't want to run a campaign just for the sake of it. I want to win. And my response to that is, of course, yes, absolutely, we want to win. We've won three elections as an independent socialist in Seattle. So absolutely, we are about winning. The left has to win, especially with the ticking clock of climate catastrophe. Mm -hmm. We have no time to mess around. We have to be very, very serious about winning. But this is the point. The Democratic Party has proven what we, socialist alternatives, said in 2014, that they will never allow... Bernie Sanders' working class agenda to become that party's agenda, because that party is controlled by billionaire interests, by fossil fuel lobby, by all the powerful interests that are completely hostile to even minor reforms, let alone an actual socialist vision as an alternative to capitalism. So the problem here is uh, that we, we will be stuck in this hamster wheel of running a left campaign inside the Democratic Party every four years now that, you know, now that Bernie Sanders has opened that road, and and losing again and again, as long as we think that this is about running that one, you know, magic presidential campaign once in some four-year period and winning, and again, maybe that changing everything. I don't think it is going to work that way. At the end of the day, I think it is a question of seeing this through the lens of a longer term movement building approach and not understanding that this one election is not going to be the result of anything. I mean, I will also say this, even if Bernie Sanders were to win, I don't believe that it could win inside the Democratic Party. But even if he were to win, do you think that they would just allow him to do all the things that he wants to do for the working class? Exactly. So my point is that this temptation that I I completely I'm completely compassionate to this idea, but I'm what I'm trying to point out that it's it's a dead end, which is that it's understandable that people believe that well, building a new party from scratch that just seems utopian, that just seems too daunting. Let's try something that seems less daunting, which is do it to the Democratic Party. I understand the temptation to go that route because something else seems more daunting. My counter to that is actually not only is the running the democratic establishment route just as daunting, because look at the kind of attacks and chicanery that they used to destroy Bernie Sanders' campaign, which they absolutely did. And we predicted that they would do it, that it would be uh, just as daunting. In fact, thinking working class agenda can succeed inside Democratic Party, that's utopian in my view. So there's no avoiding a massive class struggle type of clash, and I mean, I don't mean physical clash, I mean a political clash oh. between the haves and the have-nots, the people who have any um, incentive to keep this rotten system intact, which is the billionaire class and their political cronies, and the billions in this world who have every reason to urgently bring about a social shift. There is no avoiding that political clash. That political clash is going to happen one way or another. And the sooner we understand that as long as we keep ourselves beholden to a party that is controlled, not by us, but by the billionaire class, that is going to run into a dead end. So it's never going to be Easy, man. I'm not trying to sell this idea that if you it's going to be easy to build a new party. No, I promise you, when we do build that new party, I promise you that there will be all kinds of hostile elements who will become part of that party and then try to use that party's platform to further their own own careers. So we should not expect, and this is the main point I'm trying to make, we should never expect that it's ever going to be easy. It is going to be hard. The question is which is the right way to go, which is the way that's going to yield us the most results. And this is where I'll come you know, full circle to Bernie Sanders' response. He said something like, I don't want to run an educational campaign. And my response to that was, well, you are not going to be able to win inside the democratic establishment for the simple reason that they will not let you win. They will use every trick in the book to undermine you, which is exactly what they did. And on top of that, you will send a wrong education of, you know, it won't even be the right kind of educational campaign where the message, you know, the right kind of educational campaign is our campaigns, where we say openly and honestly to ordinary people, this is the way to go. We can we can do it. It's not going to promise you that it's going to be a rosy path, but this is the only way that will yield results. And the last point I'll say in in response to your very important question is that I think we should also stop. Um, engaging in this what I feel is the false dichotomy between local and national politics any idea that the democratic establishment will let you do what you want for the working class locally is uh, is dispelled that idea is completely dispelled by looking at what how how hard they're going after my office they as you said they have attacked us in every which way I have lost count of the number of lawsuits the number of uh, attacks you know based on so-called ethics. Uh, that have uh, uh, been done against us in 2019 the democrat the progressive wing of the democratic establishment latina council members women they ran a candidate against me in the primary so the and now we are facing this recall attack so my point is that there is no space where whether it's local or national that we will be able to build the left without an onslaught of attacks by the ruling class and no we are not going to win every battle we we take up. It's a question of which direction you're heading, though. That's the point.
1: I think you make a lot of really compelling points. And you may be right that they would have never allowed Bernie to win because I'm recalling the times when we saw the discussions of them using superdelegates to basically steal the nomination away from him in the event he did get a plurality of uh, pledged delegates, but not an outright majority. Um, so I think that actually is a really compelling point. My my only issue is that I, I've been kind of like trying to broaden out my analysis, and I kind of look at both of the parties as many institutions within a larger system, a capitalist system. And so in the event, let's say hypothetically speaking, Bernie Sanders were to win the presidency if he did pursue uh, a third party option. Don't you think that the same institutional mechanisms that would have kept him down um, if he ran within the Democratic Party, would still exert that same pressure on him if he was outside the Democratic Party because he'll still be working with Democrats and Republicans in Congress. He'll have to caucus with them as an independent president. So I, I'm just trying to figure out, like, in terms of long-term strategy, I, I kind of, like, my, my theory of change has kind of been a two-pronged approach. I think that you do have to try to take over the Democratic Party, even if that might be almost impossible. But I also think that third-party alternatives are effective at putting pressure on the other parties because they can only get so out of step with their base until they start losing portions of that base to third parties. So I think that you you know using both to your advantage uh, when when it when it's effective is going to work. But how how do we like I, I think this is kind of like speaking to a broader question um, of capitalism in general and like is capitalism allowing us to make the change at all and you've kind of answered that question in the sense that so long as you have movements really you can you can do whatever so long as that movement is activated and working class people are are brought into this process and not kind of sidelined
9: to your first point, wouldn't if if Bernie Sanders had run as an independent and if he had won, and, and I think that is a loaded point because the only way he could have won is if we had a completely different situation here in the United States with movements genuinely empowered on a national level, like the small example that we have shown in Seattle, but it would have to be a hundred times over. Uh, so as far as your question, wouldn't wouldn't they have attacked him even if we, wouldn't the Democratic establishment have attacked him even if he had run as an independent? Absolutely, they would have. And that's not a hypothetical question. Look at what they're doing in Seattle. Look at what the Democratic establishment is doing in Seattle. I am not a Democrat. I am a socialist right. alternative member. I ran independent of the Democratic Party. There's been no shortage of attacks. I mean, as I said, I have lost count of the attacks they have made against my office. So... I don't think the point of um, difference between whether you run as an independent or you run as a Democratic Party member is about how much they will attack you. What they are hostile to is if you are genuinely wanting to fight for the working class. Bernie Sanders is genuinely wanting to fight for the working class, which is why we supported him. And yes, that is precisely why the Democratic Party establishment will be utterly hostile to his agenda whether he ran as a democrat or as an independent that's not the question the question is which is the way in which we can genuinely build the strength of the grassroots or the strength of movements of rank and file people of millions of young people is it going to be within the democratic party or is it going to be to build to begin to build an independent force and that's where i think the answer is latter not turning everybody into this blind alley of the Democratic Party, which we know doesn't work because they are hostile to our agenda. That is why we need our own organization. And bottom line, again, the only way we have been able to do what we have done in Seattle is because I am not alone. I actually have a force with me which is socialist alternative. That's the kind of difference it can make if you have your own party standing with you because no individual, however extraordinarily gifted, is going to be able to do this on their own. So it doesn't matter how genuine and courageous Bernie Sanders is, alone, he is not able to achieve it. And he's he's clear about that. He said, he talked about being an organizer in chief. Where, where I disagree with him is, is, is that possible from inside the Democratic Party? And I don't believe that it will be. And at the end of the day, I think you also made an important point yourself, which is that as long as you are running inside the parties of capitalism, you cannot build a force Against capitalism. I mean, it's as simple as that. And that is why what we need is a, a, a political organization that will be for and by the American working class, that will be tied to the rank and file of the labor movement, that can actually present a collective, you know, sort of organized challenge to the might of the capitalist class. And running uh, candidates from this this kind of party will be part of the work that the party would do. And in reality, the most important point would be the party would be rooted in the working class and really build, helping to build movement. And I think, uh, again, these, these questions are uh, to be posed even to the squad, even even though they're, they're run as Democrats. The question is, what is stopping them from, for example, launching National Days of Action for Medicare for All? really building action conferences we we organized tax amazon action conferences in seattle they can organize medicare for all action conferences nationwide do you do you do we believe that there will be any shortage of enthusiasm on the part of ordinary people for something like that no medicare for all is one of the most popular demands in the united states including a huge proportion of republican voters and we are in the middle of the pandemic everybody who is on the ground wants medicare for all so what's stopping the squad from doing it is not any uh, suspicion that there's enough and that they may not be enough enthusiasm on the ground what's stopping them at the end of the day is that they are afraid that if they did that they would be completely you know that 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 would be the the sort of it's it's a call to arms you know it's a call to mm-hmm. action to the working class that is completely against what the Democratic establishment wants. And it's not just Nancy Pelosi. It's, you know, it's it's that whole group of them. Uh, and many of them who even call themselves progressive, they are not going to agree with this. So at the end of the day, the only way that the squad could do this is if they had their own party with them. And that is why I'm saying that we need a new party because, uh, you know, the conservatives, the corporate uh, politicians, they have a very big force on their side, which is the capitalist class and the capitalist system itself. What do we have on our side? Millions and tens of millions of people. So unless we organize them in a serious way with a political organization that goes beyond just election years and is rooted in mass movements, we are not going to be able to achieve that.
1: Yeah, I think this is really fascinating. And I've kind of been like... uh... I've been both sides around this issue. Like, I kind of like I think we should try both things at once. Like, I think that try to take over the Democratic Party, try to form a new party, put pressure, uh, build up existing parties, organize. I think that at the end of the day, even though there's there's like a lot of disagreement on the left and it is somewhat divisive and it's dividing a lot of members of the left. One thing that I'm always willing to admit is that if we find a strategy that works then I'm willing to abandon what I previously uh, knew. You know, I'll unlearn the bad habits. And I think that you certainly are coming from a place of legitimacy, uh, having been able to accomplish so much that didn't just change a lot of Seattle, but it's having an impact on the national political discourse. Because again, we're kind of seeing the Democratic Party copy your minimum wage model in seattle which you kind of spearheaded so it's it's really interesting and really thank you so much for coming on i've taken up way too much of your time but i think that this recall effort is it's really important that we fight this and just having you explain like what it takes to truly like get change is is it's just perfect so thank you so much shama uh can you tell us where we can find you online on twitter um and whatnot
9: yes for the Solidarity campaign against the recall attempt, please go to Kshama solidarity.org which is my first name, K-S-H-A-M-A, Solidarity.org. You can find my uh, council office stuff, you know, really interesting stuff on Twitter. My Twitter handle is CM Kshama, that is CM and my first name. And of course, you can just Google my name or you can Google Socialist Alternative and find out more information. Now, really welcome anybody who's watching this. If you have... Questions about Socialist Alternative or how we have conducted our work in the City Council, uh, what it means to be a socialist, how we can win any of the victories that we're talking about, the necessary things like Medicare for All, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. And I really appreciate you, Mike, for asking all those really important questions.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for your time. It's nice to, like, have someone on who has done so much, like, explain what it takes. Because I I think that, like, I'm really... I've kind of like I went into this like doom and gloom mode after 2020 and it felt like everything was hopeless. But to really look to these examples of success in the United States, I think it shows that not all hope is lost, even in this late stage capitalist system. Like we can affect change. It's just a matter of like doing the right thing. And most importantly, organizing, you know, talking to people. So thank you so much, Councilwoman Sawant. Um It's been an absolute pleasure.
9: Thank you so much, Mike. And as you said, yes, it, it does feel like doom and gloom and it's completely understandable. I feel that way, too. Uh, And it's it's because there is a lot of, uh, you know, we see the system not working for us. But I think the thing that really makes me feel better when I'm having one of those doom and gloom moments is when I remind myself of one simple logical reality, which is that if we don't fight, then we are facing doom and gloom. We have no option but to fight. And I think that should really help us remember that it is worth fighting for this planet and humanity is worth fighting for and what better what what better way there is to spend our life.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much. Beautifully put.
9: Thank you so much, Mike. Really appreciate it.
1: Well, that's everything, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far, as usual, I want to thank everyone who signed up to support the show. You help us not just to survive, but thrive as well. And you all are absolutely integral to our success. Thank you so much. I will see you all next week. My name is Mike Figueredo. This has been The Humanist Report. Take care, everyone.